Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. charts one day on the tour bus we were looking at Pac's first album we were like oh you doing you doing good Pac you know he was like in the 40s or 50s somewhere with his first album Sons of the P was in the top 10 and had just got certified and all that and I remember Pac storming out the room looking at the chart how his album went and he just looked at me and went if I could get a beat like kiss you back walked away and I'm like whoa because usually I let him pick the tracks. He's like, yeah, I want this one, I want this one. But then I realized he wanted me to get involved and, and tell him, this is the star track. He was telling me, like, he can't pick them, just give me something hot, you know? So I made sure he got, I get around, so many tears and all that next hit. Yeah. It always felt like I was in the studio putting music behind Huey Newton or Malcolm X. I knew it was important. It was honor when Pac called you just stopped what you were doing took all your equipment and flew to wherever he was and went in the studio the hip-hop artist shock g leader of the group digital underground has died he was 57 years old he was born greg jacobs though you may know him better by an alter ego so just let me introduce myself my name is humpty the Humpty Dance was Digital Underground's big hit in 1990. Around that time, a young Tupac Shakur joined the crew as a backup dancer. Shakji recognized he had vocal talent and started getting him to make guest appearances on tracks. Go ahead and rock this. Now I clown around when I hang around with the underground. Girls used to clown, say I'm down when I come around. Gas me, and when they pass me, they used to diss me, harass me. But now they ask me if they can kiss me. Get some fame, Shock G later helped to produce Tupac's debut album, and after that, his breakout single, I Get Around. The thing about Shock and Pac was this. Um, they both had a lot of absence in their lives, I think, from um, just like family. And so they, they just bonded very quickly for that reason, I think. That's music journalist Danielle Smith, author and host of the show Black Girl Songbook. She remembers interviewing Shock G and the whole Digital Underground crew in Oakland, California. And in a way that uh, things went back then in the Bay Area, we were also just a group of young people with common interests, and we all became very good friends. As a musician, Shock G was deeply indebted to the sound of George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. He once said, Digital Underground is where Parliament left off. Danielle Smith remembers her friend Shock G as intensely creative, always working behind a locked door, but also the center of every party. Shock was a genius of, of, of bass. Like he just, he knew how to make it, he knew how to manipulate it, and he knew how it would make everybody feel. It's, uh, he was just a genius of that. Shock G died yesterday in Tampa, Florida. As of yet, there's no cause of death given. Jimmy Dright, known as Chopmaster Jake, co-founded Digital Underground with Shock G in 1987. 
Yesterday, he wrote on Instagram, 34 years ago, almost to the day, we had a wild idea we could be a hip-hop band and take on the world. Through it all, the dream became a reality. I say fascism is end-stage white supremacy. See, so I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. In Germany, a Syrian refugee running for a legislative seat in the upcoming election has withdrawn his candidacy because of racist attacks and death threats. Esme Nicholson has more. Tarek Alaoz, a 31-year-old lawyer and human rights activist from Damascus, was hoping to become the first Syrian refugee to make it into the Bundestag. He spoke to NPR shortly after announcing his bid for the Green Party. We refugees were all so motivated when we arrived in Germany. We wanted to learn the language and become part of society. That was nigh impossible because of the asylum process. That's why I want to become a federal lawmaker. When Alaoz fled Syria five years ago, he thought he was leaving the threat of violence behind him. The whole reason I came to Europe was so that I could live in safety and with dignity. But citing death threats and a racist offensive against him, Alaoz stood down last month. He's currently not talking to the press, but he has spoken to fellow Green Party candidate Lamia Kador. I wasn't surprised by the threats and abuse pitted against Tarek, but I think he was. We have a problem with racism in this country, and not just with far-right extremists. Racism is widespread even in the middle of society. Kador says she faces racism daily. Her parents also came to Germany from Syria, but she was born here. I'm used to a certain level of hatred and hostility. It doesn't scare me anymore. But it's scary for Tarek, who's experiencing such vehement racist abuse for the first time. Like Kador, journalist Fada Ataman was saddened but not surprised by Alao's decision. Being the target of racist abuse and threats myself, I fully understand why Tarek Alao has stepped aside. But it's very bitter news. Effectively, he's unable to take part in our democratic process, which is a damning verdict on our society. Ataman, who wrote the book I'm From Here, Stop Asking, is the director of Neue Medienmacher, an organization that strives for diversity within the media and politics. She says they have a long way to go. Two days after Alaoz stepped aside, Bavarian public television aired an ostensibly satirical comedy sketch about the election featuring a comedian in blackface. Unfortunately, blackfacing on television here is not that unusual and it's only just starting to be questioned. I think that says everything about where Germany is when it comes to tackling racism. Ataman says another glaring sign that racism is well and truly ingrained in society is the disproportionate representation of minorities in politics. She says between 92 and 96 percent of state and federal lawmakers are white, even though people with what's referred to here as a migration background make up 26 percent of Germany's population. 
Last year, Zeneh Shaheen was hoping to stand for mayor in the Bavarian town of Wallerstein before he was forced to step aside. When I announced my candidacy, there was a huge outcry, especially from the conservative CSU council members who said the C for CSU stands for Christian, not Muslim. So I withdrew from the race. I didn't want to cause a rift in our town. Shaheen, an engineer whose parents are from Turkey, was born in Germany, but he says he's still considered an outsider. They didn't like my name, my background, or my faith. And that hurt, of course, because I knew that if I were called Thomas Müller, they'd have supported me. Felis Kekeluolu says German political parties need to take a hard look at themselves. She's the co-founder of the empowerment network Bund Grün within the Green Party. Every political party in Germany is far whiter than society, and this is a major deficit in our democracy. We work with established politicians within the Green Party, people willing to question their own privileges, who are open to power sharing. She says the ruling Conservatives could use a similar diversity initiative ahead of this September's election. Markus Söder, one of the leading politicians of the centre-right and the state premier of Bavaria, attended a carnival in 2015 dressed as Mahatma Gandhi in brownface. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. If you're going to talk about sports as, a, as some kind of reflection on black male existence, that's far more the story I've seen. Or those who may barely graduate don't make the pros and, and are trying to navigate that into some type of labor, but they really haven't, you know, been trained to do that. So many of them, you know, like I said, they're lucky if they get a degree at all. You know, you have some who still have trouble reading. You have some who still have trouble. So if you're going to talk about athletics and privilege, then put it into real context. Don't use these, these LeBron James examples as, as some kind of metaphor for black men. Because if that were the case, our whole reality in the United States would be a different one. But it's not. They represent a small minority, extremely so. Uh, my response would be three letters if it's just going to be athletics is black male privilege. C-T-E. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Authorities are still searching for a motive behind the mass shooting that took place earlier this month at a home in York County, South Carolina. The victims were Dr. Robert Leslie, his wife Barbara, their two grandchildren, and two AC repairmen, Robert Shook and James Lewis. The gunman, Philip Adams, a former NFL player, later died by suicide. There are still more questions than answers as to what sparked this act of violence, but the shooter's father told WCNC he believes football had a negative impact on his son. He was a good kid, and he, uh, I think the football messed him up. According to the York County Coroner's Office, his family agreed to have his brain undergo a study to determine if he had chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. It's a degenerative brain disease found in athletes, military veterans, and others with a history of repetitive brain trauma. WFAE Sarah D'Elia has more. Chris Nowinski is the CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, an organization dedicated to concussion and CTE research and education. He also does outreach for Boston University to help recruit brain bank participants, which means calling families who recently lost loved ones to ask if they'd be willing to donate their brains for research. 
I do not like to make those calls. I make those calls because we have to make those calls if we want to understand what's happening inside the brains of people who've taken thousands of head impacts and are changing. Along with his research, TED Talk, and numerous interviews he's given on the dangers of head injuries and CTE, you may recognize Nowinski from his former life. In the early 2000s, he was a professional wrestler in the WWE. The young man from Harvard. Chris Harvard was his stage name, a play off of his alma mater, Harvard University. Chris Harvard was an obnoxious bad guy who always liked to remind his opponents where he got his degree from. It's not my fault you don't have a college degree, much less one from Harvard. Yeah. There's no reason to attack me. Make him apologize to me. Make him apologize right now. His WWE career was cut short in 2003 due to concussions. He says at the time, he didn't understand how much they were affecting him. He continued to wrestle and put himself in danger. I was completely reckless with my brain, and I have probably laid down some serious problems that will begin to manifest, if they aren't already, over time. If I was talking to my younger self, I would say, don't let anyone hit you in the head. Which is not always easy to avoid in contact sports. Nowinski points out it's not necessarily the concussions that lead to CTE. Those are just the head injuries you notice. Repeated injuries to the head over time are dangerous, even if they don't lead to losing consciousness or a bad headache. Athletes who play sports like football, soccer, rugby, ice hockey, baseball, and even bobsledding can be at risk because of head injuries. But the threshold for damaging your brain is actually below a concussion. So you can take plenty of hard hits that you feel fine for, but you're triggering what we think is an inflammatory process that is starting to rot your brain. Philip Adams, the gunman in the April 8th mass shooting, played football at Rock Hill High School and South Carolina State University. He went on to play six seasons in the NFL. He had two known concussions over three games in 2012. His sister Lauren Adams told USA Today that her brother's, quote, mental health degraded fast and terribly bad, and that, quote, there was unusual behavior. The York County Coroner's Office is working with Boston University on the CTE study. Even though the shooter died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, Nowinski says a CTE study is still possible. You do not need the entire brain to get a CT diagnosis, although that's the best way to study it. But CTE is often throughout the brain and in very specific regions of the brain. In most cases, a diagnosis is able to be made. A CTE diagnosis can only be made post-mortem, but Nowinski says there are signs and behaviors that can be present in a person while they're still alive. Nowinski says when someone has CTE, lesions have spread throughout the brain because of repeated head injuries, which can change the way the brain functions and how a person acts. When you start having problems with memory and cognition, and you often have problems with mood or behavior, what they call neurobehavioral dysregulation. Aggression, mood swings, anxiety, paranoia, and impulse control problems are also symptoms of the disease. Nowinski has multiple examples of athletes who committed acts of violence before dying by suicide who were later diagnosed with CTE. One of those examples was the wrestler Chris Benoit. You know, I mean, my third brain that I helped procure for research was uh, someone I'd known for years who killed his wife and child before he killed himself. So um, I'm, I'm uh, horrified by these things happening, and that's why I'm committed my career to trying to figure out why this is happening. How do we stop it from happening? How do we help people who have taken thousands of hits to the head and may have problems related to that?
Close family members are often the best at diagnosing CTE, Nowinski says, because they witness these changes in behavior. With our brain bank of a thousand brains, two out of every three times a family member donates the brain to their loved one, that person has CTE. And so family members are incredibly good at diagnosing it, like shockingly good. They're nearly as good as doctors are at diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. So it either tells you this is very widespread in the population of people who've taken thousands of head impacts, or it creates very specific and obvious changes to your personality and problems in your life. Nowinski points out if CTE is found in someone's brain who's committed an act of violence, the diagnosis isn't meant to justify their actions. People often see CTE used as an excuse for behavior. But the reality is that's not why the research is being done. The research is being done you know, partially because multiple people have been involved in similar situations who have been diagnosed with CT. And there might be a connection between the disease and this sort of behavior. And if that's the case, this is a public health problem. And therefore, we need to understand what exactly is happening here so we can protect and prevent the next one. Because of an increase in brain bank donations in recent years and delays with the pandemic, Nowinski says, it's hard to say what the turnaround for a CTE study will be. It could take a year, he said, before results are ready to be shared. For WFAE News, I'm Sarah D'Elia. Today on the show, we've been hearing reaction to the verdict in the Derek Chauvin murder trial. Later, we're going to hear from Chicagoans who have lost family members at the hands of police, but who are still seeking justice. But first, I'm going to switch gears a bit, because as we've been remembering George Floyd, it's hard to forget the person that he called out for in his final seconds, his mother. He said, Mama. It was a tragic moment and a gut punch for moms, especially black moms. What it means to be a black mother in America can be complicated for more than one reason. But one of those reasons is the decline of black maternal health. Black women in the U.S. are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. And the situation's even worse in Chicago, where black women are dying at twice that rate. But there's a new push to close that health gap, including a bill that's aimed at not only building on existing efforts, but addressing the pandemic's impact on black maternal health. It's called the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act of 2021. Democratic Congresswoman Lauren Underwood of Illinois' 14th District co-sponsored the bill, and she joins me now. Hi, Congresswoman. Welcome back. Hi, I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. Also with us is Dr. Dakesha Lewis. She's Medical Director of Obstetrics and Gynecology for Advocate Trinity Hospital in Chicago. Hi, Dr. Lewis. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Congresswoman, before we get into this bill, I do want to get your reaction to the verdict yesterday in the Chauvin trial. Well, um, I think that I certainly responded with a sense of relief, a little bit of disbelief, if I'm being candid with you. And, um, you know, I'm pleased that there's been some accountability in this case, which was so clear and obvious to many of us who uh, saw the evidence well ahead of the trial beginning. Why was there disbelief for you? Um, I did not think that uh, we would see this officer convicted on all three charges. I didn't think that was possible in America. And Dr. Lewis, there's a lot that's happening in the news right now, not just this trial, uh, because between the trial, there was also 
uh, a police shooting of a 13-year-old named Adam Toledo. There was a shooting of a 20-year-old named Dante Wright. And this time's been especially difficult for black and brown communities to, to watch all of this unfold. So how are you taking care of yourself right now? I think, you know, in our community, there is a sense of relief coming off of this verdict, but we also have to keep in mind the ongoing anxiety. Many of us, you know, were unsure in a case with so much evidence and, you know, you think it should be an easy call. You know, you still have people like the Congresswoman said that uh, have anxiety because you don't know which way it's going to go. And I think as as a black woman having to continue to do your job every day and still know that these types of situations are happening on a regular basis, it, it gives you a source of ongoing anxiety um, and dread, honestly. And Dr. Trauma from racism and, and from police violence, this can't be good for expectant mothers, can it? Absolutely not. I mean, I know we talk about the direct effect of, um, of gun violence, the direct effect of, like you said, racism and things in our communities. But you have to remember that each of these individuals who were either shot or killed, they have sisters at home. They have mothers at home. Um, they have loved ones who are then coping with grief coping with feelings of injustice, and they may be at the same time dealing with personal health concerns. We have, I have pregnant women all the time that are dealing with losses of loved ones, um, whether it be from specific violence, uh, whether it be from the COVID pandemic, and they're still required to carry on with a pregnancy, stay as healthy as they can. These are very, very complicated issues to have to deal with um, for someone who's already going through one of the trickiest or hardest things that women have to go through as far as health is concerned. Representative Underwood, I, I'm really anxious to talk with you about this bill that you co-sponsor to help address these disparities in black maternal care, uh, because this is a major problem and we really do need help. So from what I understand, though, the issue is personal for you, too. That's right. Um, you know, I'm a nurse and learned very early on in my clinical training that uh, this disparity has existed for a long time in this country. When I say this disparity, I mean black pregnant people being more likely to die of pregnancy-related complications than their white counterparts. Um, but I also lost a close friend uh, who died three weeks after delivering a beautiful baby girl of her some pregnancy-related complications. You know, she was a dual PhD, a sociologist and gerontologist. We were in graduate school together, actually, at Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and she died. And I, I knew that if I were fortunate enough to win my election to Congress, that I would want to work on this issue specifically. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I got sworn in, quickly teamed up with Dr. Alma Adams. She's a congresswoman from North Carolina. And we formed Black Maternal Health Caucus. And then in March of 2020, I introduced the Mommy Bus with then-Senator Kamala Harris as my Senate colleague. And there are 12 measures here, but can you for the interest of time, give us some of the highlights? Yes. So this is an evidence-based solution to comprehensively address every dimension of the maternal mortality crisis in America. So that's everything from um, social determinants of health, like nutrition and housing and transportation that really can have a direct impact on our health status, including our maternal health outcomes. To COVID-19, you know, we've seen this pandemic shine a bright spotlight on long-existing health disparities, but it exacerbates them. And maternal mortality and severe morbidity, right, severe illness um, is no different. 
Um, and so we have two bills to address maternal vaccinations, um, the need for participation of pregnant, postpartum, and lactating people in these clinical trials for the vaccines and for treatment. Um, we have a new bill related to climate change, um, recognizing the new data that was just published last summer showing the link between extreme heat and air pollution on maternal health outcomes. We address the perinatal workforce. You know, we're so fortunate in this conversation to hear from uh, Dr. Lewis, but many pregnant people don't have the opportunity to choose a provider, whether it's an OB or a midwife or a nurse midwife or a doula or a lactation consultant that either shares their cultural background, their race, their language, their religion. Um, and, and every pregnant person should have that kind of a choice in this country because we know the data tells us that it makes a difference in the outcomes, right? So as you can see, this is a bill that is designed to get at the root of this problem, which is systemic racism in our healthcare system, um, but empowering communities, empowering providers, um, the groups that have been doing this work for so long to have the resources to save moms' lives. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and my guests are Democratic Congresswoman Lauren Underwood of Illinois' 14th District and Dr. Dakesha Lewis of Advocate Trinity Hospital in Chicago. We're talking about a new bill that's addressing disparities in maternal care for black women. Coming up in about 10 minutes on Reset, we're going to hear from Chicagoans who have lost loved ones at the hands of police following the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. So stay with us for that conversation. Dr. Lewis, it's 2021 now, and certainly we've got some more information. So what do we know about why black women are so much more likely to die during childbirth? So this is a a multifaceted um, concern. Obviously, we know that there are some conditions that are going to, black women are going to be much more at risk for. Um, we know that comorbidities uh, tend to be higher in our communities. Um, but we also know that there are a lot of social determinants of health that plague our black and brown communities far more um, than our majority communities. Um, the one ex- thing that really excites me about um, the Mommy Bus Bill is that it's trying to address you know, increased funding for community-based organizations. Many of our community-based and faith-based organizations help fill the gap uh, of resources for our patients. We know that our black and brown communities have healthcare fears and hesitancy around um, seeking health care and around the information that they're giving. So being able to partner with those organizations will help improve um, the retention of our patients, encourage our patients to come back to their visits, encourage our patients to take their medications. We know that investments in housing and nutrition and transportation are huge. If our patients can't get to their visits, then they're not going to seek preventative health care. They're not going to seek um, those those physician um, physician um, uh, examples of how they can improve their health. Um, if they don't have access to nutrition, we can't talk about weight management in pregnancy, and we can't talk about uh, the appropriate amount of, of food and calories patients should take so that they can appropriately breastfeed their babies if they don't have access to nutrition. So we know that all of these social determinants help affect how our patients get health care and how they're able to follow up or be compliant with what we're telling them to do. Um, so, so this bill really, really excites me because it looks at all of these things that we need um, in order to improve, improve outcomes for our patients. Congresswoman, we know that these disparities in black maternal health are even worse here in Chicago and in our state. That's right. Quickly paint the picture for us. What does that look like? 
So in Illinois, black birthing people are six times more likely to die than their white counterparts. Um, we've gotten some new data from Illinois' Perinatal Quality Collaborative suggesting that uh, substance use disorder and suicide are now the leading cause of maternal death in our state, which makes bills like uh, the Mom Matter Act, which is included within my Mommy Bus Act, so important to uh, really make sure that every birthing person in every community has the access to the mental health and substance use treatment that is so essential to saving lives, particularly during a vulnerable critical period like mm. um like the postpartum period can be. Um, and so in Illinois, we just got the news last week that there will be an expansion of Medicaid so that folks um, on Medicaid can get coverage for that full year postpartum thanks to the incredible leadership of Congresswoman Robin Kelly and Senator Durbin. Um, and so that's an important advancement that will hopefully help um, reduce uh, our mortality rate and the extreme disparity that we see. But we, we know that more needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so that's why this Mommy Bus bill is so critically important. And, and quickly, the timeline on the bill? Um, well, it's been introduced. We're, we're gaining support, and we're hoping uh, to, to get it signed into law this year. And so, you know, we have a champion in the White House and Vice President Harris um, and bipartisan support throughout the Congress, and so we're committed to action. Final word for you here, Dr. Lewis. i just got a few seconds, but I, I'd love to hear what you most wish people understood about what is going on with maternal health for black women. I think... What I would most want people to understand is that every person deserves inclusive, respectful health care, clinically excellent health care that's culturally sensitive and that um, allows people to feel like their needs are being met. And I think having conversations like this, introducing legislation like this that addresses these needs is the best start we can have. We have a very long way to go. um, And having conversations about the diversity required for us to have the right people at the table to make the right decisions so that we can trickle down excellent health care to our patients in our black and brown communities. That's Dr. Dakesha Lewis of Advocate Trinity Hospital in Chicago. Also with us, Democratic Congresswoman Lauren Underwood of Illinois' 14th District. Thank you both. Maternal health. Catherine, anecdotally, I've heard women of childbearing age are having some of the most intense reactions to that second shot, that their bodies are mobilizing against this virus. Is it possible that that could be connected to what you're talking about when you talk about menstruation? There is some evidence that um, people who have more estrogen circulating in their bodies tend to have a more reactive immune system. So that could definitely be part of it. Hmm. At the same time, it sounds like there's a lot of this that makes sense to you, but I'm also hearing a lot of things that don't make sense at all. We're seeing some people with big followings on social media make claims like the idea that uh, women report bleeding oddly when they're being around women that have been vaccinated. I know you haven't examined these cases individually, but does that pass the smell test for you? To me, I don't see any reason why that would be having an effect unless there are other things happening in that person's life. You know, again, the periods can be very flexible and react to lots of stuff. And I just can't see as many ways that that could have an effect as I can for something like the vaccine, having an immune response already happening in your body. I just think that mechanism is much easier to follow. 
I also want to ask about something because it's out there. And, and of course, we don't want to spread information, but we also kind of want to nip it in the bud when we get the sense we're hearing it. And that's there's a lot of rumors that these vaccines could affect your fertility. Based on what you know as a researcher, do you think there's a good chance of that? Based on everything I know, I do not expect this vaccine to affect fertility. Again, fertility is this um, ability to have kids and the number of offspring. That's what its fertility is about. There's a small chance that because if your menstrual cycle is a little bit disrupted just after you get the vaccine, you might have a harder time actually conceiving that cycle. Mm -hmm. But that is not fertility. Um, that's just like why you wouldn't necessarily want to get pregnant when you had strep throat or something. Your body is already busy. It's using its resources to do something else. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about a short-term effect coming from these vaccines. Very short. I want to go to the phone lines. Natalie is calling from St. Louis. Uh, Natalie, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. Thank you for joining us today. I'm, I'm curious to hear about your experience. Yes, I've had a very similar experience, and I'm surprised to hear that others have it as well. I'm 33 on the pill and haven't had a proper period for years. Just completed my second vaccine shot and have had a very heavy, very painful period for the first time in a very long time. Hmm. Well, I'm sorry to hear it's been painful. Hearing um, what Catherine is saying about all this, does it make you feel a little better knowing, hey, there's there's some reason this might be and it's not some some crazy wacko theory? It certainly does. Well, Natalie, thank you. Thank you for that experience. Um, it, it's good to hear that. Um, Catherine, it, it seems like periods are something that we don't want to talk about very much. And that might be something that we end up brooding on and, and wondering over as opposed to something just as simple as what you've just explained here. Why do you think that is? I think that a lot of people had, have had very negative experiences when they do try to report something being different about their period. So a lot of times, because periods can be really variable, people get dismissed when they try to bring it up with their doctor. It's not often asked about as part of just routine care, even though it's something that serves as a, you know, constant uh, sort of biological check for women already. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have to deal with this every month. It's interesting that doctors would be dismissive if people are talking about what, what can be a pretty painful or big deal for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's one reason why so many people struggle for a long time to get diagnosed with things like endometriosis or PCOS or any number of other things that are actually um, something physiologically wrong, because a lot of times people's perceptions of their periods get dismissed as just opinions, not knowledge about your body in the same way that other symptoms often are uh, appreciated. Hmm. So, Catherine, going back to the question of, of this specifically as it relates to vaccines, they did extensive clinical trials before these vaccines got the go-ahead. It's the reason uh, many of us, including myself, were more than happy to line up and get ours. Do you know if they looked specifically at issues involving menstruation in those trials? Um, I've spoken to a few people who are more knowledgeable about the vaccine trial process than myself. And as far as all of them know and have checked, it's not a routine thing to ask as part of the clinical trials. Hmm. However, um, my collaborator, Kate Clancy at UIUC, um, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, um, and I have both gotten a number of emails and tweets and um, other types of communication from folks who've 
said that, you know, when they did try to bring this up to their doctor after the vaccines were rolled out, they were dismissed because it wasn't listed as a side effect. But there are a handful of folks who were in the trials who have told us that they tried to report that their menstrual cycle um, was a little different after their vaccine, but they were dismissed and they had to um, basically make the person at their appointment write down menstrual cycle different. Hmm. Um, we've also heard from people who tried to report it to the vaccine adverse events um, VAERS system, mm -hmm. where you can report adverse events. And they've been trying to get their experiences just sort of logged as one of the things that you can report. And they've been stuck in pending status for weeks. Huh. Catherine, you study periods. Historically speaking, is it surprising to you that people trying to report these experiences would run into this resistance and that the people conducting these trials wouldn't even think to ask about this, apparently? I don't think it's surprising at all when you look at the history of medicine, especially medicine in the United States. You know, it was largely set up for and by um, healthy white men. Um, most of the clinical trial history in the United States didn't include um, women at all. And so if things like knowing what your menstrual cycle is like for you, um, aren't part of your lived experience, you don't think to ask it when you are making the checklist of symptoms that we ask about. So it just doesn't occur to someone who doesn't menstruate that maybe that's a thing that you might want to ask when you're asking about things like headache and fever and injection. It's the soreness at the injection site and all of these normal symptoms that people think to ask about. So you and your colleague are seeking to write this. You've launched this survey. I understand it was two weeks ago you launched it. What kind of response have you gotten? We have been absolutely overwhelmed at the response. Um, there are so many people, again, reaching out through things like email um, or tweets. And the survey itself has had, when I looked earlier today, over 51,000 people start to take the survey and around 40,000 complete the survey because we do allow people to um, come back and finish later. So 40,000 have completed it. I mean, that seems like an astonishing number. Is, is that what you were hoping for when you went into this? When we started, we were assuming that because, again, we're asking about something that a lot of people don't like to talk about publicly, mm -hmm. we sort of thought that maybe we'd get 500 or 1,000 people over several months who wanted to fill out our survey and enter into the little text boxes, descriptions of their period. So um, we are currently um, just overwhelmed at how supportive so many people have been, how much people have said that it validates their experience, the number of people who are trans or gender non-binary who appreciate that we're not asking about women's experiences, but the experiences of people who menstruate, um, because they're often left out of conversations like this. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been overwhelmed and pleasantly so for the most part, uh, just thankful that people care. Why haven't you learned anything? Many school leaders will tell you with schools reopening, their top priority right now isn't math or reading. It is kids' mental health because this year has been stressful for so many children and traumatic for some. We've got the story now of what some schools are doing to help kids feel safe and ready to learn again. Here's reporter Christine Herman from member station WILL and NPR's Corey Turner. Kai is nine years old, and he lives in Washington, D.C. with his mom and his baby sister, Elena. 
During the pandemic, he's been doing Taekwondo virtually, and sometimes his mom joins him. And my head was so close to your fist. But I was not going to hit you. But you were close to. He's also a master at tickling his sister. And last but not least, Kai loves being around people. I would be the first person ever to have all every single person in the world as my friend. And so his mom, Rashida Humphrey Wall, says spending the past year learning remotely away from all those people. It was a big blow to him. Stuff just keeps getting taken, and he just didn't understand. Like, when am I going to see my friends again? Even before the pandemic, Kai struggled with worried feelings. His father died several years ago, and Elena, who's two, was born with a serious heart condition, Down syndrome, and a fragile immune system. When COVID hit, experts say lots of kids like Kai felt their worries kick into overdrive, and the pandemic has led to big spikes in both child stress and trauma. Kids have had extended exposure to chaos, crisis, uncertainty. Matt Beal is a child psychiatrist at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And he says because of all this COVID-related stress... If kids don't return to school and get a lot of attention paid to security, safety, predictability, and reestablishing of strong, secure relationships, I think that we're not going to be able to make up ground academically. How can schools do this? Well, mental health experts say they can start by building in time every day in every classroom for every child to share their feelings and learn some basic coping skills. Think morning circle time or for older students, homeroom. Lillian Sackett, an ESL teacher at Hernandez Middle School in Chicago, has her own morning routine. It's informed by training she got around child trauma through a school partnership with a regional children's hospital. I think we need to allow the students to share their experiences with the pandemic and to give them that safe space that we can talk about it. Sackett wants that space to feel safe, but also fun. When she found out her students loved Bob Ross and his tranquil televised painting lessons from the 1980s and 90s, she worked him in. We watched five minutes of Bob Ross. And we watched a whole, you know, painting session within one week. Happy little tree lives right here and watches everything happen. The happy trees, yeah, the happy mistakes, and they love him. The only rule that we have here is that painting should make you happy. You should enjoy it. And if it does that, then it's good. It has to be fun for them. When they're having fun, they're so excited. They'll learn anything you throw at them. 13-year-old Shayla Ramirez has benefited a lot from this kind of daily social-emotional check-in. She's an eighth grader at the same school where Sackett teaches. Last fall was incredibly stressful for her, she says, when her entire family came down with COVID. It was really weird because sometimes my head hurt and sometimes I was really cold. And it was just like... Shayla's voice trails off here. And then she tells us her uncle died of COVID early in the pandemic and that her third grade sister was really scared when they got sick too. My sister was like, oh, I don't want to die. And it made me feel bad because it's just like, I don't know what, I didn't know what to tell her because I was on shock too. I never thought I would have gotten COVID. But Shayla says she made it through this hard time thanks to school and regular check-ins with her teacher, asking how she was feeling and if she needed anything. Shayla also says she loved the lessons her class got in mindfulness and deep breathing. They'll say, oh, take a deep breath, one, two, three, and then I let all my mind go. 
For many kids, this will be enough. But some, like Kai, may need more one-on-one -on -one support. And this is where school social workers and psychologists come in. Kai has been talking regularly with a therapist through his elementary school, and he says she has helped him come up with a plan for when he starts feeling stressed at home. I would go in my room, lay on my bed, and either watch TV or play with my toys or do something like that. And then I'll come back out when I'm more calm and happy. As a solo parent, Kai's mom Rashida has also been under incredible stress this past year. So through a partnership with Georgetown, Kai's school arranged for her to see a therapist too for weekly parent well-being sessions. I don't know what I would have done really because in the beginning I think I had depression, anxiety, anything you could think of, I probably had it. Partnerships with mental health care providers can be expensive for school districts and may not be an option in rural or under-resourced areas. The good news is the latest COVID relief package should help, says U.S. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, a Nevada Democrat. The American Rescue Plan is sending $122 billion to K-12 schools, and she wants to be sure districts don't just prioritize math and reading. Yes, of course, we want to make sure that our children aren't left behind during this pandemic year academically. But hold on, because we also have to focus on their mental health and well-being. And this flood of relief dollars will help districts be able to hire more school counselors and social workers and better train teachers. In the meantime, Kai is doing his best to give his big worries a big roundhouse kick. And he can't wait to get back to making friends with the entire world. Like, I want to be free, and Elena wants to be free. We all need to be free from this quarantine. I'm going crazy. I want to be free! For NPR News, I'm Corey Turner. And I'm Christine Herman. That story comes from a reporting partnership between NPR, Illinois Public Media, and Kaiser Health News. Peace, quiet, and good order will be maintained in our city to the best of our ability. Riots, melees, and disturbances of the peace are against the interest of all our people and therefore cannot be permitted. Well, Justice Quince, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I wanted to ask about some of the legislation under consideration in Tallahassee this session. Now, you've spoken out in opposition to House Bill 1. It's the so-called anti-riot bill, or officially the uh, um, uh, combating public disorder bill. What are your concerns about this piece of legislation? I'm concerned because I really view this bill as an anti-protest bill. Uh, the bill talks about, in vague terms, and I, I, the definition, I believe, is very vague, of riots and uh, mob intimidation. And, uh, you know, it really is so vague that any lawful, peaceful protest, if it is invaded by counter-protesters, or simply those who are using the opportunity uh, to loot uh, because can be named a riot. And so you mm -hmm. have innocent people who um, lawfully exercising their right to assemble and to, uh, you know, protest and try to get the government to listen to their grievances are now swept up in what 
could be defined as a riot. Then they're gone off to jail, no bail until first appearance. And it just is not the way uh, to deal with our First Amendment rights. How do you see it being implemented then? I mean, if if there are issues like that, like how do you think prosecutors would, would deploy this law? Well, you know, the prosecutors um, will, of course, look at what the statute says and what what is uh, allowed under the statute and decide whether or not this was a riot, these people were involved in a riot, and then charge them accordingly. Um, and I'm not sure how they would view the fact that these people had a permit to um, gather, then other people who were opposed to uh, the purpose of that gathering may come in and decide that they want to um, start some trouble. Mm -hmm. The prosecutors are looking at the whole thing. So it seems to me that we end up with citizens having to try to prove that they were not a part of, of what could be considered a riot. And it only takes three people uh, for a gathering to be called a riot or nine mm -hmm. people for it to be called an aggravated riot. Do and you... It, it, you end up, in my estimation, with uh, more people of being prosecuted. We have more people in our criminal justice system at a time when we should be looking at criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. Do you anticipate there could be legal challenges to this then, either at the state or, or even the federal level down the track sometime? I'm sure there will be, but, it, but the problem is generally legal actions take some time. So in the interim, what you have is people who may be prosecuted under a law, which may or may not in the future be declared unconstitutional. There's also elements of the bill, and I think you've, you've uh, spoken out about this aspect too, Justice Quince, kind of amplifying or elevating some uh some things from misdemeanor to felony which which has sort of a knock-on effect right that 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 creates some some problems for people who are caught up in that yeah it does it, it not only increases our p prison population but we end up having more people with felony convictions possibly and then that falls into are their voting rights going to now uh be at issue? Are they mm -hmm. going to be facing a possible um, going through all the issues you have to go through in order to have your voting rights restored? But I think even more damaging in this bill is the affirmative defense that they have put in there for people who injure those who are protesting potentially and mm -hmm. if it's declared a riot, then they have an affirmative defense if they injure them. And we know, we have seen in many of these situations where someone comes in and plows a car or a truck into protesters. 
Mm-hmm. So this affirmative defense to me is also very troubling. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it uh, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism and white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious. The answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. More details are coming out about last week's mass shooting at an Indianapolis FedEx facility, where the eight victims have been identified. They're Matthew Alexander, Samaria Blackwell, Amarjeet Johal, Jasvinder Singh, Amarjeet Sekhan, Jasvinder Kaur, Carly Smith, and John Weissert. Four of the victims are members of the local Sikh community. Indianapolis police say Brandon Hole, the 19-year-old white mass murderer and former FedEx employee, who then killed himself, legally purchased the two semi-automatic rifles used in Thursday's attack just a few months after police seized a shotgun from him after his mother raised concerns about his mental state. But prosecutors said Monday they did not try to use Indiana's red flag law, which could have prevented Hole from obtaining the two guns. We'll have more on that later in the show. Authorities have not shared evidence Hole was targeting sick workers when he attacked the FedEx facility. But on Monday, police revealed they'd previously found evidence that Hole had browsed white supremacist websites. Most of the workers in the FedEx warehouse next to the airport in Indianapolis, whole attacked, were sick. This is Indianapolis sick community member Rimpy Gern, who knew two of the victims speaking to NBC. We're going to have a party at this time, and now we're arranging a funeral. It's hard. It's sad. All they wanted to do was just provide a good life to their family. Tragically, the Indianapolis mass shooting took place as more than 15 states across the country, including Indiana, are marking April as Sick Awareness and Appreciation Month. For more, we're joined by Simran Jint Singh, scholar, activist, senior fellow for the Sick Coalition, which is calling for a full investigation into the possibility of racial or ethnic hatred as a factor in the killings in Indianapolis. His recent piece for CNN is headlined, Why Sick Americans Again Feel Targeted After the Indianapolis Shooting. Welcome back to Democracy Now! I'm so sorry to have you back under these circumstances, Simran, but talk about what you're calling for. 
Sure. I mean, I, I will start by saying, you know, these families, as we heard in that clip, uh, these families are devastated. And, you know, there were sick families that were harmed and hurt in this attack. Uh, there were families who don't identify as sick who were hurt in this attack. And it's so it's so painful uh, to hear their stories and, and to, to humanize them, to, to really recognize uh, what they're going through. And I'd also say that this community in Indianapolis, across the country, all around the world, uh, is also devastated. And, and I think that's in part because we know that attacks like these, they're, they're meant for all of us, that any of us could be affected. And then we have to ask ourselves, uh, when, is, when is it coming for our parents? When will we be attacked? Will our kids be safe? And I think that's that's a lot of the sentiment in the community right now. And and so, given the pattern of violence against six, uh, we we are demanding a full investigation into the possibility of, of bias uh, and and racism uh, in this attack. And we we don't know what the authorities will conclude, uh, but we know that the feeling among the community is that once again. Uh, year after year, week after week, we, we are undergoing uh, real white supremacist violence in this country, and, and, that's, and that's not something we're willing to, to stand down on. Simran, could you talk a little bit about this, the history of these uh, of this kind of violence uh, uh, targeting the Sikh community, uh, even before 9-11, but since 9-11 as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so many of, of these stories, uh, as they come up, we, we, we minimize them and think about them as uh, one-off incidents. And we say, well, um, this, this attack targets the Sikh community, and, and you know, that's, that's too sad, and, and let's move on. Um, but, but I think there's something much deeper here, right? So, so we can look back to the past few years uh, and, and look at the massive spike against uh, the massive spike in anti-Sikh hate crimes. Uh, that have been reported by the FBI. From 27 to 2017 to 2018, we saw 200% increase in reported hate crimes against six. 200%. I mean, ask any statistician or sociologist, that's not a number uh, that we see, right? That's not normal. We can talk about uh, the 2012 massacre against six in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, uh, in which a white supremacist entered their place of worship while they were praying uh, and just slaughtered six sick Americans. And so it's it's not just today, it's it's 10 years, right? That's 10 years. And this year, as we're marking 20 years since 9-11, we can look at the racist backlash that ensued uh, after the terrorist attacks, in which uh, Americans all over the country looked at people who looked like me with their turbans, beards, and brown skin and saw them as the enemy and started killing them too. And so, so much of our, our narrative is around, around these sorts of moments, but I think it's critical. I, I appreciate your question, Juan, because when we limit our understandings to the modern moment and, and we erase history or we forget about history, we ignore the reality that these are long-standing problems. Six first came to this country 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago. And they started being subjected to racist violence immediately thereafter. The first race riots targeting six occurred in 1907 in Bellingham, Washington. And then the rhetoric was around Hindus, quote unquote, and around people who were stealing their jobs. And so, I mean, you know, we can look at this and tell ourselves that, oh, this is, this is today's problem. 
and that we should move forward. And, and, you know, we should, but we won't be able to move forward until we name the real problem here, which is the long history of xenophobia and white supremacy in America. If we look at these as uh, historically connected issues, and if we can see how these are patterns that connect other communities and, and other kinds of racist violence, then we'll be able to recognize the reality of racist violence and white supremacy in this country, and then we'll be able to take that on correctly. And uh, so often in some of these cases, though, as for instance, the uh, the attacks on the uh, the nail salons uh, in Atlanta recently, and now this, uh, the, it's not immediately apparent whether these are directly white supremacist motivated. But have you been in touch with any of the uh, of the um, the community in Indianapolis or some of the the victims to get a sense of what you're able to piece together about the uh, the killer in this instance. You know, it's a, it's a really important question because in a lot of these instances of hate violence, we don't actually know the motives of of the attackers. You know, people don't typically uh, come forward and announce, "I'm killing you because you are X Y Z identities." And so there there are rare instances actually where we have real evidence, and that's and that's part of the problem in how we think about and categorize racism in this country. We know that the evidence and the science and the research shows us over and over again that there is implicit bias lurking within each of us. And in a lot of these instances, it's impossible. It's literally impossible to separate out the biases that we hold and the actions that we take. And so in a, in a situation like this, here's what we know. We know that there's a 19-year-old white man who had access to guns when he shouldn't have, he entered a place of work that where he used to be employed. He knew that the facility was heavily populated by Punjabi Sikh immigrants, many of whom look like me. And he killed them. He murdered them. This was premeditated. It was not a crime of convenience. It wasn't a random act. This was something that he premeditated. And so these are, these are some of the uh, points of reality that we cannot dismiss. And again, I would go back to what impact does it have on these communities, whether we're talking about the anti-Asian hate crimes uh, happening all across the country, in which we see a pattern of targeting targeted attacks uh, by, by a killer in Atlanta, uh, or in a situation like this. Again, we don't have to know uh, what these people are announcing. We don't necessarily know the bias in their hearts and what motivated them. But we know in both cases, and in cases all over the country, that hate was in their hearts. Murder was on their minds. And that is a problem that we all have to be able to sort out. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot it of people say it's China. racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. Almost every U.S. senator went on record yesterday against hate crimes. A bill before the Senate denounced anti-Asian and anti-Pacific Islander sentiment. It encouraged local law enforcement to track hate crimes against them, and nearly all senators from both parties voted yes. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said it offers reassurance to a large group of Americans. We will not tolerate bigotry against you. And to those perpetrating anti-Asian bigotry, we will pursue you 
to the fullest extent of the law. This bill was approved 94 to 1. Republican senator and presumed presidential aspirant Josh Hawley of Missouri was the only senator to vote no. NPR congressional reporter Claudia Grisales joins us now. Claudia, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Okay, so it makes this statement against uh, hate crimes and hateful sentiment, but beyond that statement, what would the legislation do? It incentivizes law enforcement agencies to better track and deter instances of hate crimes through grant programs and other efforts such as reporting hotlines. It also calls on the Justice Department to initiate a review of these hate crimes for law enforcement departments across the country. It directs new guidance for online reporting requirements and an expansion of public awareness campaigns. And it includes a bipartisan provision that was authored by Connecticut Democrat Richard Blumenthal and Kansas GOP Senator Jerry Moran to allow alternative sentencing where a defendant could do community service in the neighborhood that was harmed by their actions. How did this issue bring together senators to the point where 94 out of 95 who voted voted yes? We heard impassioned arguments from both sides of the aisle about the spike in discrimination and violent attacks in the wake of the pandemic. Mm. The bill's sponsor, Hawaii Democrat Maisie Hirono, said unprovoked random attacks are happening, quote, on our streets, restaurants, basically wherever we are. Another Democrat from Illinois, Tammy Duckworth, a combat army veteran, said her mom, who was of Asian origin, just experienced this kind of discrimination in a grocery store recently, and she said she herself is not immune either. And I've had that happen to me while wearing the uniform of this nation with her flag on my shoulder, been asked, where are you from, really? Yeah, yeah, your dad has been here since before the revolution, but where are you from? This tells the API community, we see you, and we will stand with you, and we will protect you. And we heard arguments from Republicans as well, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who is married to former Cabinet Secretary Elaine Chao, and he called this a real problem. Okay, symbolically significant measure, and it does something substantive in encouraging local law enforcement to track these kinds of crimes. But still, I have to note, not the very biggest or most complicated legislation that ever comes before the Senate. Is there a chance that this kind of bipartisanship could extend to other issues? Some members really hope so. Schumer and other lawmakers are pointing to some upcoming legislation that already has bipartisan support, such as a new effort to boost U.S. competitiveness with China. But they're facing some really tall orders here on police reform, gun legislation, immigration and infrastructure. The Senate's number two Republican, John Thune, said in some ways the Senate got off on the wrong foot with a massive COVID relief bill that was approved without GOP support. And he's still holding out hope they can get back on track. Claudia, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That's NPR congressional reporter Claudia Grisales. Listen. Just touching on some real issues right here tonight. That's, That's, right. All. That's all. That's all. I want good. y'all to observe the excellence here. BX providing the Sonics, my man, Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up. You know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh-uh. With the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you got to do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. Police officers were watching the verdict in Derek Chauvin's murder trial very closely. NPR law, law enforcement correspondent Martin Costi has been talking to some of them. Good morning, Martin. Good morning, Noel. All right, so the verdict comes down, guilty on three counts. And what did police officers tell you? 
Well, the cops that I've been talking to uh, say they're relieved. Um, you know, the, the ones I've talked to at least say they did not like Chauvin and they did not like the damage that he had done uh, to their profession. Uh, Leon Taylor is a former Baltimore cop, uh, also an African-American, and he told me that the reaction among his friends and colleagues has been positive, uh, in part because uh, cops are uncomfortable with this image of arrogance that uh, Chauvin has come to project on their uh, on their profession. The general consensus has been that we are relieved because, you know, for every cop that's done it the right way, you have this, you know, tainting everything that you've done. You have people looking at you, you know, with suspicion. Hmm. How universal do you think that sentiment is among police? Well, they're they're not, uh, you know, all of one mind. Um, I have yet to talk to a single police officer who's told me that he thinks Chauvin was not guilty. I mean, I think there's pretty uniform uh, thought about that. But you're right that there are some cops right now who've gone quiet. Um, uh, you know, as Taylor puts it, as others are celebrating, some are quiet, and they're worried about the atmosphere that surrounded this trial. I mean, the, the, the big national union in this country, the Fraternal Order of Police, did call this trial fair yesterday in a statement. But some officers still are kind of uneasy about the, the, how the sort of the specter of potential un, uh, unrest or even violence kind of hung over the whole thing and that Minneapolis might burn again if there wasn't the right verdict, so to speak. Um, they think that Chauvin was guilty, but they wonder... Uh, you know, whether this fear, fear of unrest may be sort of a bad omen for future uh, incidents where police officers are facing uh, some kind of scrutiny or are accused of misconduct, um, that somehow in the future the size of the potential crowd outside the police department may be what determines whether or not you get fired or disciplined or even prosecuted. Oh, that is interesting. Okay, so they are looking, as you would imagine, at knock-on effects. Are you hearing, regarding knock-on effects, are you hearing from police officers who hope that this verdict will lead to some kind of larger structural change in what they do? I mean, a lot of the reform-minded people in policing say that's already kind of happening. They say the protests last summer uh, after Floyd's murder definitely pushed things along, especially in the states, uh, in state capitals. Um, we've seen a number of states, things like new bans on chokeholds or new rules requiring independent policing agencies to uh, to investigate uh, police shootings. Sue Rahr is the uh, former head of the uh, police academy here in Washington state. She was also on President Obama's police reforms, uh, police reforms task force, and she pointed to legislation in Washington requiring police officers to intercede when one of their colleagues is using excessive force. And she says that wouldn't have happened without Floyd's death uh, calling attention to the whole situation, making legislation possible. The power of this case is that it caused nearly universal outrage and it mobilized the country the same way the news reporting from Selma got people's attention in the early 60s. So in that way, I think the power of the case is less about the particulars of the incident, but, but the momentum that it created. Let me ask you about the momentum and about the big picture here. President Biden last night again asked the Senate to pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. Would that federal bill mean anything for police practices, given that they work on a state and local level? Well, the, uh, you know, policing is local in this country, and uh, the federal government can certainly do a lot of things like provide incentives, grants, um, uh, collect better data nationally. But ultimately, if you want to require police departments do something differently, you have to go to the state level. And that's what we're seeing, I think, uh, on a more effective basis than anything we might see on the federal level. Okay. NPR's Martin Costi. Thank you, Martin. You're welcome. The hunt is on. And you're the prey. Even before the murder of George Floyd, there were calls for police reform in the U.S. 
Following his death and now the conviction of his murderer, those calls have grown even louder. Trust between police and some people, especially in African-American communities, is very low. African-Americans are more likely to be fatally shot by police than white citizens, pulled over by officers and imprisoned. Now, the US Attorney General has announced an investigation into policing in Minneapolis, the city where George Floyd was killed. Here's Merrick Garland speaking earlier. Yesterday's verdict in the state criminal trial does not address potentially systemic policing issues in Minneapolis. Today, I am announcing that the Justice Department has opened a civil investigation to determine whether the Minneapolis Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of unconstitutional or unlawful policing. I asked our correspondent Larry Madeau, who's in Minneapolis, about this review. We know this is going to be very broad. This patterns and practices investigation review the practices of a police department quite extensively. They take months and then a report is issued. And in the case of the Minneapolis Police Department, the prosecution in the case made the point in closing arguments that this was not a case about policing, but about Derek Chauvin. And one activist told me yesterday it should be because they have had problems with this department for years about how they treat black people, whether they discriminate on minorities, black, brown and indigenous people, how they respond to cases. And now what the federal investigation just announced by the AG will do, will look into, among other things, how they train their policies, their supervision, and their use of force, and whether it's been excessive or in line with the U.S. Constitution. Larry, last year there were lots of calls to defund or change the way police forces were, were funded or even disband some forces and start from scratch almost. Is there still a feeling that that is the way to go amongst some people and these investigations and reforms are really just tinkering around the edges? That is correct. There is, and I've been to so many protests this, this past year, and including many this past week here in Minneapolis and at Brooklyn Center, and I'm standing at George Floyd Square this moment from where he was murdered by Derek Chauvin, and there are many signs that say abolish the police, defund the police. They think it's not currently working. One activist told me yesterday, this warrior-like training that they give the police needs to stop, where they come into our communities as if they're going to deal with an enemy. Another activist, Marsha Howard, just told me this morning, it used to be like a game reserve, that they come in and as if you're looking for an animal, you tag and you cart them away, and we're asking for that to stop. So if it means reimagining policing from a public safety model, which responds more to mental health problems and social services, as opposed to violence in every case, that will be a step in the right direction. Larry Madoa, trust between police and some people, especially in African-American communities, is very low. In Columbus, Ohio, where 16-year-old Makaya Bryant was killed by a police officer this week, distrust of the police department runs deep. For many there, the concept of police protection is something of an oxymoron. As Frank Morris reports, activists are ramping up demands for reform. Hours after Micaiah Bryant was killed by Officer Nicholas Reardon, who was responding to a 911 call for help, protests erupted in her neighborhood. <laughs> Neighbors like Ira Graham III say her death fits a pattern and reinforces something he's told his 18-year-old son for years. It's just not safe to call the police. I tell him, unfortunately, never call the cops for anything because you call the cops and things can unfortunately end up like this. That sentiment isn't unique to Columbus, of course, but it is pervasive throughout the black community here. 
And standing in front of Columbus City Hall, Dewan Sharp, 37-year-old Army vet, says it puts the community on edge. I shouldn't be scared of the police and the hood. I'm not scared of the hood, but just saying, like, I shouldn't have to live in fear when these people pull up. I shouldn't. I should be able to call 911 if my family needs it. Not worry about my, if I call 911 and my family going to be killed. Activist Jasmine Ayers says that fear is rational. Just numerically speaking, we have one of the most violent police departments in the United States. That's especially true for African Americans. The group Mapping Police Violence tracks all types of police killings. And its data show that Columbus police are responsible for more black deaths in the last several years than departments in some much larger cities, and multiples more than comparable Ohio cities like Cleveland and Cincinnati. And the problems go way back. In 1998, the U.S. Justice Department invested Columbus police and found a raft of abuses, a pattern of excessive force, false arrests, and false charges. Columbus City Council President Shannon Harden says unrest last summer following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis led to a fresh and powerful push to rein in the department. There really has been a lot of change and a lot of reform. We've done more in the last year in terms of police policy than we've done in 30 years uh, combined. Hardin says the city banned no-knock warrants. It set up a registry to screen out officers involved in hate groups. He's especially proud of new police teams, including people trained in psychology, to de-escalate some crisis situations. And lastly, we took to the voters a civilian review board that would have vital oversight and accountability, but would also have subpoena power. Columbus voters embraced that civilian review board wholeheartedly. It passed with nearly 75 percent of the vote. The city will take a major step toward establishing that board on Monday when it's scheduled to finalize the first slate of board members. But Jasmine Ayers suggests an even bolder move is in order. We want the Department of Justice to investigate the Columbus Police Department because it's clear that after a decade of disproportionately killing black and brown people, that they're not going to fix it themselves. And since activists calling for a Justice Department probe might not carry enough weight, Ayers wants the city to officially invite federal scrutiny. It is much more meaningful when the government calls the government and says, we need help. And the Department of Justice just went into Minneapolis. They can come into Columbus, and we need them to make that phone call. Of course, that kind of call can be difficult, even for a reformer like Shannon Harden. He won't say where he stands on a Justice Department investigation, but he says he would welcome tougher federal guidelines governing local police departments, ones that build trust and help heal the painful rift between Columbus police and the citizens they serve. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Columbus. I want to be a cop. Yeah. I want to be a cop. Can you keep your lips sealed? I think with leadership skills can turn low-level offenders into crisp bills. You know, I've always wanted to be a cop. Breaking news out of Northrug, where a high-ranking police officer has been fired. This follows an internal investigation into reports that he donated money to a man who is accused of shooting two protesters in Wisconsin. Ten on your side's Tom Shaddis following the details from the newsroom. And Regina and Steph, we just got a statement from Police Chief Larry Boone on the case of Lieutenant William Kelly. Boone says he concluded that Kelly's actions were in violation of city and departmental policies. Now, back on April 16th, Lieutenant Kelly was initially placed on administrative duty after reports surfaced that he donated $25 for the defense of 18-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse seen here. That donation allegedly occurred back in September. Rittenhouse is charged with murder in the shooting deaths of two Black Lives Matter 
Center protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin in August. Rittenhouse's claimed self-defense. Now, the alleged donation from Kelly, who served as the executive director of Norfolk PD's Internal Affairs Division, also included a note that said, in part, every rank-and-file police officer supports you. Don't be discouraged by the actions of the political class of law enforcement leadership. Now, Chief Larry Boone's statement also says a police department cannot do its job when the public loses trust with those whose duty is to serve and protect them. The city says Kelly can appeal the decision. We'll be following the developments. Live in the newsroom, Tom Shad. Context of white supremacy. Kyle Rittenhouse Defense Fund. Strong vibrant gusty renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date saturday april 24 2021 so i have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in dial-in if you have thoughts observations counter-racist suggestions questions to ask uh, the number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. That number again, 720-716-7300. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. We will get to many folks uh, who dialed in, get their thoughts uh, and views on some of the topics, new segments uh, for the week uh, to begin. I will say, and this kind of goes all the way back to the beginnings, the origins of the context of white supremacy. We had spectacular weather this week. The weather in Seattle was so amazing. In fact, the past, since last Friday, it, uh, the past three days, it started to go back to what it would normally be in April of, you know, this time of year, spring weather, early spring weather. But man, oh man, from like Thursday up until Tuesday, almost Wednesday, it was amazing. Like it was 80 degrees uh, on Sunday and uh, I tried to take advantage as best I could. Uh, went and I practiced yoga outside every day. Uh, I practiced yoga out on the pier almost every day. A few of those days I just was, uh, <laughs> I guess I, I had to settle for just being outside. But uh, for over half of the time out on the pier water all around just beautiful amazing uh, to get some sunshine in and the ducks were out and oh I can even pause and, and tell you a story so Sunday 80 degrees met, <coughs> excuse me I'm at Green Lake and uh, that's like my favorite location I didn't even know this but this is like one of my favorite locations in Seattle might be my favorite uh, like water spot location waterfront location in the Seattle area uh, and I'm out there on Sunday they have lots of ducks in the middle of Green Lake they have Duck Island so the ducks they'll come over and hang out and eat whatever else and they go about their business so two ducks they hop out one of them is the normal duck green feathers orange beak all the rest of it the duck next to him 
black, and I mean like blue-black, super melanated little feathered friend. So he's significantly bigger than the other duck. And I was like, wow, maybe this is not a duck. I'm not intelligent about much of anything, much less, you know, biology and the different species of uh, birds and such. So I'm thinking this might not even be a duck. Maybe this is something else. So they go about their business. They're quiet. They're not quacking, not begging for quarters or anything. They go up the little hill and there's a woman who I think would be classified as white. She's sitting up there and she says, uh, wow, I've never seen an all black duck before. So I'm thinking in my mind, how do you know it's a duck? They keep going about their business and, you know, we're both kind of just watching and enjoying the day. So there's one more individual classified as white, white woman, I think, who's maybe 15 meters, 15 yards away. So she's seated. The black duck, he goes down or whatever he is, and he's just eating grass. He doesn't hop on her blanket, doesn't try to rape her, nothing else. He's just eating grass. She looks apprehensive. She has her back to him. She hops up, moves around so she can see him, keep her eyes on him. She has two pals. They join her and they spread out their blanket and kind of shoo him over. And he moves a little bit. And then he comes back. Uh, and so it uh, looks like an individual who'd be a white man. He hops up and he makes lots of noise like, get out of here, rawr, rawr, and all this. Uh, and so the duck, he, he scampers away. He runs down to the coastline. And then as the white man retreats to go return to his seat the duck turns back and I don't know if y'all have seen ducks but you know when they like expand their wings and uh, like they're drying off or whatever and he's bristles his, his feathers up and then he goes right back to, to get his spot back next to their blanket uh, and I was like oh wow he's kind of honorary I love it because I mean we're right next to Duck Island like this is they live here they are if, if you're thinking of athletics they are the home team we are the visitors like if you if you don't like the ducks don't hang out near Duck Island. <laughs> you should pick a different location as opposed to going there and then yelling at the duck. So uh, I was proud and happy uh, that the, the black duck went back up the embankment to regain his spot. Like, you're not going to shoot me away. I'm hanging out here. Uh, so then I thought about it. I was like, man, are they profiling the black duck? Like, is that... <laughs> like they didn't... <laughs> There's tons of ducks around. Like, I didn't see them shoo away any of the other ducks. Like, are they... And then I was like, yeah, it's hurting my head. I came here to just chill and relax not think about are they practicing racism against the negro ducks but that did happen uh at the 80 degree sunday anyway green lake is my favorite park even if they do profile the negro ducks uh and this is like all the way back to the origins of the cows like back of the bus and gus we used to go hang out at green lake almost on a daily basis when the cows first started out way back in 2007 like we didn't even have a name for the program. We would just go out, hang out, Green Lake, all especially in the summertime. Like, my goodness, like, that is exactly summer of 2007. Like, we would go kick it at Green Lake hard, like, every day. Ugh. Easily. If, I, if there was no system of uh, white supremacy, racism, and or if I was classified as white, I would own property in Green Lake, I would not talk to any of you wacky folks about white supremacy, racism. I would behave. I'd be just like them. I would go out to Green Lake every day and do my, it's like three miles. So you can go around the lake. You can get boats. Uh, you can go to yoga at the lake, rollerblade, like you name it. Go to Green Lake, hang out and uh, absolutely flipping amazing basketball court, tennis court, volleyball, you name it.
love Greenway. Can't wait to go back. Summertime, I'm going to be there every day. It's going to be rules like any name calling or acting a fool on the program. Have somebody call in. Gusty, I would like to communicate. Did you call someone a coon? The program is over. Going to Green Lake. Anywho, things to share before we get to folks who dialed in questions, comments, all of that. I had a segment I didn't play. It was about uh, national parks. Uh, Mount Rainier is visible from many locations throughout Seattle. Mount Rainier is like mm, 90 minute drive uh, from Seattle, but it is very prominent, like lots of places where you could check out Mount Rainier uh, throughout the city of Seattle. But I was thinking like, wow, I live in a location where I visibly see national parks every day. Uh, and they were talking in the clip about the whole white supremacist history of national parks. And then a lot of non-white people don't have access to national parks. Uh, was thinking about all of that. And the Green Lake is not a national park, but getting outside is super important. Exercise, breathing exercise was even talked about in the segment. Getting outside so important for many, many reasons. I hope people are taking advantage and getting some sunshine. It can totally train, uh, change, impact your brain computer and how you feel. Mr. Fuller even talked about that. He said he'll uh, he noticed he was watching uh, BET. I think <laughs> he was watching the rap videos and he said uh, they always have black people in environments with a lot of broken glass and concrete and fences and barbed wire like they're they're getting you ready for the lockup. This is the environment where we intend to have you not some place where it's going to be redwood trees that have been here for 200 years and you know green grass and lavender <laughs> you know they don't want you to have that sort of environment at all you oh look at the ducks is that a black duck like no no no, no. anyway things to share uh before we get to folks who uh dialed in if you paid attention to the segment where they talked about the white supremacist, potentially white supremacist attack at the FedEx facility, uh, where a number of the victims were Sikhs, non-white people, uh, in that segment, <clears throat> they said that some of the first uh, mob terrorist attacks against Sikhs in this part of the world in the early 20th century were in Bellingham, Washington. That is about... You can, t you can take a lovely train ride from Seattle to Bellingham. I think it's like three hours. Bellingham is like right at the Canadian border. You're like, you're almost, uh, you're getting pretty close to Vancouver if you get to uh, Bellingham. Uh, but it's supposed to be beautiful. I've never been uh, pretty also on the water. Uh, supposed to be an amazing place. Lots of white people. But they drove the non-white people out. That was not the first time I heard that from the book club. Uh, Sundown Towns, which we read some years back, they talked about that specifically. Uh, the incident in uh, Bellingham where they drove out the non-white people. Lots of that sort of activity. Mob, white terrorist violence uh, at the early 1900s. Uh, ongoing capital insurgents, as they call it. Uh, next, the segment uh, in Florida the former Supreme Court Justice uh, Peggy uh, Quince, I think that's how you say her name black female, uh, she talked about the new protest legislation ushered in by Governor Ron DeSantis uh, could be a future president uh, she said that these laws, the definitions are vague and it almost seemed deliberately 
vague so that you can pretty much pick out any sort of group and say, oh, man, this is a illegal protest. This is an aggravated protest because it's so vague with the definitions. We just talked about that in the book club with uh, Last Man Standing, Geronimo Pratt, the uh, tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Pratt. And we talked about this throughout on the cows with regards to definitions uh, and them not being specific uh, and racists being able to use that to their advantage. Uh, when definition like definition for racism, definition for protest, illegal protest, when you have really vague definitions, that works to my advantage if I am the one who gets to decide. Now, is this an illegal protest? Is this an aggravated protest? When I get to be the one who interprets this vague law, I have a lot of what they call discretion. Be very mindful of that when you are out and about operating really in any area of people activity, absence of definitions or deliberately vague definitions that can be weaponized, used against you. Let's see, next, uh, the segment they were talking uh, about the impact of the COVID-19 vaccine on menstrual cycles. I thought that was significant. Uh, the And I guess if we have any females, if they've taken the vaccine, you can share about that or thoughts on that. I didn't get the impression that they were saying that they thought it was something worthy of, you know, not taking the vaccine or is this trying to going to cause uh, fertility, that sort of thing, but just a concern, something that should be investigated, cause for further study. Uh, but I was interested, uh, the portion towards the end of that segment from St. Louis Public Radio, uh, and they said that some of the, they got lots of appreciation, lots of people uh, reported back a feedback that their uh, menstrual cycle had been impacted in some way uh, by getting the vaccine. Uh, and they even gave some theories on why that might be. But they said towards the end that they got such uh, positive feedback that they were so surprised. And they said they even got feedback from some people uh, who were gender non binary transgender and such who appreciated that they included them in the survey as well and I was just uh, curious folks who were born classified female haven't had any sort of operations or changes confusions about their gender status uh, their sex status as it were uh, during their time on the planet, the females that might be with us, what they thought about that gender, non-binary individuals, transgender individuals uh, offering their appreciation for being included in this investigation of how the vaccine impacts menstrual cycles. Potentially, potentially, I'll add that potentially impacts menstrual cycles. Just curious. Uh, next, I super uh, appreciated the report on the continuing investigation into uh, CTE and brain damage, make it plain, brain damage uh, for folks who have participated in uh, professional football, tackle football, and they listed a lot of other activities, bobsledding, which is one I wouldn't have even thought of, boxing and, and soccer, they said, all the rest of it. I cannot emphasize enough if you are a black parent. Maybe we'll get Najee Davenport on the program, perhaps. Uh, maybe not, but we'll see. But if we can, like, man, how do you feel? Like, knowing what you know now, being a victim of brain damage yourself, your son comes. If you, I don't know if he has children or not, but if you have offspring, your child comes to you and says, man, 
Dad, I saw you with Green Bay. You and Brett Favre out there killing it. I want to play football. Be a, I'm a, be a cheesehead too. What's your answer? Is it, man, please. Save your brain, computer, man. Do some Tai Chi. Do some yoga. Find something that is non-contact is the word. <laughs> Forget all of that. Protect your brain. Is that what he was saying? Or he said, hey, go out there and break every one of my records, man. Get out there and do it, man. You'll love it. Do the Lambo. Is, is, is that Israel? Like, I would just be curious because I have heard from a number of football players, professional, who were like, great, you know, one, get all that great stuff. Who's absolutely not. I would not let my child play at all. I don't care how many touchdowns they saw me score, tackles they saw me score, whatever. Make it plain. No brain damage. We don't even have to get into all the Jerry Sandusky and how they, how many uh, molestation reports they got, even for U.S. Olympic athletes and all the rest. We don't have to get to all that, although that's equally important. Make it plain. No brain damage. I think that report they talked about CTE brain damage as a public health problem. That's what they said about racism, white supremacy last week at the CDC, uh, CDC, so many acronyms. Uh, but that's what they did say uh, last week, CDC. And now CTE as well, can you be playing brain damage? We got enough problems already with white supremacy, therona, diabetes, just trying to eat correctly. One thing we don't need is professional football. I think we will all make it by without Monday night football. Let's see. I guess last thing I'll get in before we get to the callers. Uh, they had the we had the report. They talked about the uh, passing of Shock G, black male in the hip hop group Digital Underground, and connections to uh, Tupac Shakur, also deceased, uh, and. We did not include this week uh, report uh, Black Rob. He was with uh, Diddy, the whole bad boy organization, uh, early 2000s. One of their artists, uh, he passed away this week, I believe at the age of 52, Black Rob. And then last week, I think we did bring up Earl Simmons, uh, better known by his stage name, DMX, uh, passed away at the age of 50. Now, in that same segment, that was T. Hassan Johnson, who was talking about CTE. And if we're going to talk about black male privilege in the context of athletics, like let's keep it real. We got way more brain damage, broke athletes than we do LeBron James, like way more. Let's keep it real. Like if we're going to do the same thing, keep it 100. That's the young folks say like, ooh, we like black male privilege and hip hop artists. You just had three relatively so-called successful hip-hop artists and none of them reached the age of 58 I mean I, they didn't release a cause of death for uh, Shock G with Digital Underground but the report for the New York Times for uh, Black Rob it's not like he was in great health and uh, luxuriating in his black male privilege and then died suddenly in his bed, painless with his family and friends around with his accumulation of wealth and privilege. That's not a uh, black Rob story. Black male privilege. And they just remember we just had that report. It was, I believe the middle, uh, middle of 2020 where they talked about the obscene, uh, disgraceful number of black male hip hop artists who died. Same thing 
at a very early age most of it not from east coast west coast beef most of it from medical apartheid and living a very stressful life with not a whole lot of resources nothing that would sound like black male privilege just the past 10 days would be a pretty uh, pitiful what Mr. Fuller say worthy of great pity but DMX shock G black Rob just in the past 10 days rough times on the plantation uh, let's see if we could not use metaphors there were uh, a bevy of them uh, throughout the broadcast I believe they even compared the murder of George Floyd and the conviction there to Selma Alabama or Alabama in general and saying the reporting and people being able to see things that happened I guess John Lewis and company being beaten on the James Pettus Bridge and uh, whatever else they think they saw the, the little uh, children being bitten by a uh, white dog and such uh, down in Alabama in Birmingham uh, that that changed white people I don't think we would be here if that is what took place but that was the metaphor that was given uh, either way I really would just have to pause like they had uh, members of the Los Angeles Police Department who were accused of sending out uh, you take my breath away Valentine's cards with George Floyd's dying image on it everybody was not universally disgruntled about the killing of George Floyd. There were a whole lot of folks, a whole lot of individuals classified as white who, hey, <laughs> we didn't tell them to ingest all those drugs. We told them to comply. Who told them to go out counterfeiting anyway? That was their position. And, and the famous George Floyd was no angel. At any rate, uh, if we could not use metaphors uh, for this broadcast, uh, the metaphors frequently George Floyd is no angel because Jesus is white the metaphors support all manner of racism white supremacy and or are used to strengthen practice deception they will take two separate entities and insist that these are identical exactly like they're twins frequently this is all master deception racism victims gusty included we've been ex uh, exposed to this conduct for years uh, it has it's had a huge impact uh, and many of us are still learning so sometimes we don't have logic to articulate our views uh, and so we will substitute an analogy simile comparison of some sort to try to convey our thoughts and often that just adds more confusion if we could be direct specific with what we want to say that would be extra appreciated I will prompt about the metaphors thank you kindly uh, if we could take about five minutes to share our thoughts views that would be great just to make sure everybody gets at least one opportunity to speak uh, I'm sure we'll have extra time so once everyone has spoken once if you have any extra thoughts or questions feel free to share uh, if you could use your mute button that would be extra appreciated uh, just so we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise if you know you are around someplace where there's a television on other people talking if you're driving whatever it is just mute your line then you can return unmute say whatever you have to say just helps preserve the quality of the broadcast much obliged uh, if folks uh, I guess get any constructive information I can't emphasize enough since we are still in a pandemic vaccine or no uh, hopefully you're getting something constructive from the context of white supremacy we should not be wasting time in the midst of a global pandemic 
all of that said, the context of white supremacy, listener supported counter racist radio invest. If the cows is constructive, you can visit my blog, racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Much obliged to all of the investors who have chipped in a dozen years. Hope the cows has provided consistently accurate, helpful information over that 12 year period. Uh, below the PayPal, you should see the link also for our cash app. It is cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Uh, again, super thankful to all the folks who have contributed, helped keep the cows on. I uh, hope we have been worthy of your time and energy. We also have our wish list at Amazon.com under Gus T. Renegade. Much thanks to all the folks who have nabbed an item or three over the years. Uh, it has helped us uh, keep rolling uh, and doing content. So hopefully folks are getting something constructive, particularly over the last year when we have so many problems and so many concerns. We cannot be wasting time. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, folks who dialed in, uh, if you have commentary thoughts to share lines should be open we'll get to first few folks who dialed in uh, let's see can I be heard yes ma'am all right Greetings, Phoenix. Evening, oh they Gus listed the U.S. Uh, Virgin Islands they were on the list for the uh, national parks you all have one of the, the great I was like oh wow that would be a dream if you could do a yoga retreat down U.S. Virgin Islands with the uh, national park but good to hear from you Phoenix all right yeah that sounds like an idea uh, good evening and greetings to your uh, callers and listeners um, I work every other weekend and this is my weekend to work and I work 12-hour shifts so forgive me, but I'm going to be brief uh, this evening. Um, I listened to the information about maternal care and legislation and that kind of thing. And please let me tell our guests that one of our most powerful institutions that we have is the womb of the woman because every one of us has to come through there in order to come to the earth. Uh, I don't feel that we are regarding that womb uh, for the serious nature uh, that it presents in our being and our well-being. Um, my main thing that I didn't hear this lady talk about is that our young women are not taught about our bodies. In fact, most women that I run across, they know very little about not only their um, biology, their, their anatomy, but they don't know very much about the physiology of their reproductive system. And it's very key 
to our existence as well as our well-being that we learn as much as we can about that. And I also suggest that our men learn as well because this is really important to our existence. Um, the next thing is I am getting, a, uh, it has come to my attention that uh, women are experiencing uh, issues that they are relating to the COVID vaccine. Uh, and I'm also hearing that women are feeling that even though they have not been vaccinated, they've been close to someone who's been vaccinated and uh, due to shedding. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a term that's been used for uh, the vaccines before the COVID vaccine, that someone is vaccinated, that they actually are shedding some of the virus and they are contagious as well. Uh, so the complaints that I'm reading and hearing about is uh, women are saying that their menses is changing, that they're having hemorrhaging and bleeding. Uh, I also have read about miscarriages, um, and they are pointing out the COVID vaccine as the cause or being close to someone who's been vaccinated as the cause of their issue. Uh, there's no uh, evidence of that yet right now. It's just hearing from women who are making the complaint. So I will be keeping my eye on that. Uh, is that a metaphor? I will be keeping my attention uh, toward that issue and reporting back as well as what I'm seeing occurring um, even in the hospital here uh, or in our emergency room here, if we're uh, finding that there's an increase in women with those kinds of issues. And um, with that, I will mute my line. Thank you so much. <laughs> much obliged, Phoenix. U.S. Virgin Islands global system of white supremacy. Uh, I would say that tends to be true for most people. Like they keep us very poorly informed about all kinds of things, our own bodies. Like, I mean, you can just imagine once it goes out from there, you're confused about your body and, you know, what to do with your sex organs, how your sex organs work, what sex you are. It's all down what to eat, <laughs> what to eat to keep your sex organs and the rest oh, okay. of your body working well. Well, then, hey, everything else is going to be uh, I was going to say everything is going to be a wrap. But I mean, all else is lost if we don't even have like the basics covered and system of white supremacy, obviously pitifully. I put it that way. Pitifully, we do not frequently have the basics uh, covered. Uh, let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up. If you have commentary to share line should be open. Proceed. Uh, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you guys for taking my call. Um, greetings everyone in the line. Um, I will first start off by saying that I am doing horribly and particularly today, um, I got word that two relatives have passed uh, just today. 
Um, but um, that's just for people who may ask about if you're doing well or not. I, I'm not. Um, moving on. Uh, I will also like to say um, rest in peace to um, DMX, Black Rob, and Shock G who have passed. Um, sudden and too young, in my opinion. Um, the section about the CTE, um, I notice when um, I am going to different grocery stores and I see black children, black uh, young people in front of these stores soliciting um, people to give uh, donations to uh, sporting events, mainly uh, football. Um, I normally um, ask them questions um, about uh, what they're taking donation for, and it's normally uh, football-like sports and stuff. Um, I ask them, uh, have you heard of CTE? Most of these uh, children are like 17, 16, 15, and they say no. And I ask them, have you heard of the movie Concussion with Will Smith? And they say no, never heard of it, never seen it. Um, I think a lot of uh, this could be avoided. It's just young black people knew more about just everything that's going on. But, yeah. Um, I guess the uh, section with the white woman um, who spoke about the, the vaccine, um, I thought it was extremely tacky that uh, she tried to offset the history of medical experimentation on just the white men and exclude uh, what white women have contributed to terrorizing non-white people. But uh, that'll be it for now, Gus. Thank you. Can't have a system of white supremacy racism without white women equal partners all of that said like wow that is um horrendous um i'm sorry for your loss uh condolences to you uh and your family uh i think it's important you know to not lie because you know to have things like that happen and, and to just go oh i'm doing great you know i'm fine right poorly awful that's you know the system of white supremacy and having people uh pass away uh, way before their time. That is, you know, that is why they, in my view, there should be a strong sense of, uh, urgency about solving this problem. But, uh, I would just, you know, for you uh, and, and, uh, your family, loved ones, um, self-care, like not cliche. Cause that's so important. Cause it's already been, uh, horrendous. It's already been awful with every, or at least for most people, uh, it's been awful. So, uh, I would say self-care uh, and that's, you know, we were just as we were just talking about with Phoenix basics like resting well, uh, especially when you have really traumatic events like that. Like one of the first things it can be difficult to sleep. So really trying as best you can uh, to get quality rest, uh, eating well, that can be really difficult because at those times, sometimes you'll have relatives and they're doing it out of concern. They're trying to you know show that they care for you. Uh, but they'll bring, you know, it's not, at least in my experience, it's not like they'll bring, uh, quinoa or, 
you know, kale without pork in it, uh, or zucchini, you know, it'll be uh, sweet potato pie and, you know, lots of things that are not quite the healthiest. Uh, so it can be very easy uh, when you're stressed and, and the whole just understanding our bodies and the dynamics of stress can be very easy uh, sometimes to kind of self-medicate with eating uh, a lot of uh, sweets uh, and fatty foods. And that can just exacerbate things, even in how you feel like it's uh, I think there are psychiatrists, psychologists who will recommend I am neither who will recommend uh, decreasing sugar consumption. If you're feeling a little melancholy, if you're feeling a little sad, uh, those do not help uh, to try to get some exercise, get out of the house, just self-care, hugely important. So uh, try to eat uh, healthy, nourishing foods. If you still have an appetite, drinking water. Um, if, if you have the energy, just at least for a little bit uh, to get outside, get some, I think sunshine is so important. Like, Man, like that, something that can just have a huge impact uh, on your energy and how you're feeling. Even if you're really down, low energy, get out. And even if it's just for 30 minutes, if you can just kind of I was going to say drag yourself out. If it's if it's challenging, even if it's difficult, even if your energy is not where it normally would be, if you can just kind of almost force yourself to just get outside for maybe even 15, 20 minutes, uh, if it's sunny. Uh, and just feel the sunshine move around, even if it's just around the block and then you can go back in. Uh, but just really self care, like really be, uh, mindful, uh, about how you're treating yourself because to be dealing with that much pain all at once and all the stress that we've already had anyway, like man, self care and start with rest. That's such a, that's such a big one to go out cause it can be difficult to sleep and all the rest, like try as best you can to rest even if you have to get naps rest make sure you're getting quality rest as much of it as you can even extra rest maybe even sleep a little more than you normally would um let's see other folks who dialed in that we uh have missed oh that's so interesting i was gonna say about the football that they don't know because uh, i was thinking the same thing like will smith why don't they know watch uh Will Smith, you got pretty black female there and Will Smith. That's based on, you know, actual events and racism. Uh, I will botch the doctor's uh, name, but the black male doctor that Will uh, Will Smith portrays. He did an article in the Washington Post talking about racism. He did all this research and this discovery, and he felt like it was because he is not classified as white, a black male who came up with this. I think he even came up with the term uh, CTE uh, that they didn't want to hear it. The, uh, I have to get the Washington Post report, but he said that. But yeah, that's man. Will Smith tried. Other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, proceed. May I be heard? Uh, caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, the segment where I think they were talking about focusing on mental health for the children or the uh, younger people coming back to schools. Um, and they're using Bob Ross, um, I guess kind of like a crooner, low tone of voice. And that may be 
uh, a way to help relax the uh, younger people in the school environment. Because um, I like drawing sketch myself, so I do think that uh, can be a constructive way, I guess, to, uh, to help. I guess they were doing that to calm the children down or to get them focused into learning because uh, the language she used uh, is that, hey, you know, once we look at these five-minute segments, um, they'll be ready to learn whatever we throw at them. They, she said throw, so I, I thought that was interesting that she used that, that term. Um, for the, I think uh, the, the term is the sick uh, group. Um, I think that's uh, non-white. I believe I have seen uh, some of the interviews on um, the news reports, and I, I just really think that it's going to get interesting, especially with the, I think, the bill also where they said that I believe it was 47 to 1 or something or something of that uh, to to that degree or whatnot. And, you know, the uh, the – Derek Chauvin verdict and everything. I just find it interesting how the white supremacist system, the way they have it set up. And I do appreciate that the, the person that was being interviewed mentioned white supremacy uh, with how these acts of violence continue to be perpetuated by most of the time. They don't seem to point out, uh, white men in that regard, you know, um, they they mentioned the nail salon where that where the crime or the murders happened in that area a few weeks ago. But I do agree. Well, I won't say I do agree, but I think that they should at some point, you know, end up focusing on that aspect. But with the different non-white groups and how the terms are being used, uh, the anti-Asian hate. And then I don't know if they will consider the group, the, I think they said the sick classification, or well, I don't know if they'll consider that a part of the Asian category or what. Like I haven't really seen that necessarily because that's been another experience of looking at the uh, reports uh, on the job where they'll have W and white or Asian for the classification depending on the person, whether they're darker or lighter. And I just think that white supremacy or the white supremacists definitely will continue to utilize that to continue the um, confusion. And I appreciate the reports. And that's all I have to say. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged caller in Florida. I too appreciated the um, report. That was Democracy Now! My BFF, Amy Goodman, uh, where she was interviewing. They were talking about the uh, FedEx shooting, and I appreciated them uh, using the to make it plain white supremacy, to call it what it is. Uh, in attacking uh, non-white people. I'm not sure if Sikhs are classified as so-called Asian. Um, 
Yeah, I would have to see the, the definition. I would have to see the definition, like uh, in terms of the census. Are they? Because see, I don't even. Yeah, I'd have to see the definition. Are they? Are they classified as Asian? Would this? Would this be under the new Asian? Uh, AAPI Asian American Pacific Islander hate bill would this count uh, the FedEx shooting or are they not classified as Asian I would need more what the people in charge of racial classifications usual suspects they would have to break it down for me uh, incidentally are you concerned about the protest law down there in your the sunshine state being being branded as a member of a gang or illicit protester Oh, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, sir. Uh, I will um, look that up and see, because I have heard of it in bits and pieces in the past couple of weeks. Um, And I know that they had in Williston, like a small town not too far from here, they were doing a, a bunch of black people were doing a, a form of a protest. They were walking in a line in a certain direction. And uh, they were talking about the Crab Fest being canceled. So I guess it was not only that, but maybe a couple of other issues. And they kept using the term community. So uh, I am starting to wonder how it is going to affect the protest factor around the area. So I will have to look that up and see what information I can get out of that. For sure. I think other folks have said that um, that type of legislation could spread to other areas. So perhaps whether you live in Florida or no, uh, you should be concerned. Uh, Yeah, I think even other parts of the world, they've had that type of anti-protesting legislation. So be mindful. Not that I would recommend going out stomping around the streets about white supremacy, racism or anything else, but just, you know, as that is something that is known to happen from time to time might be good to, you know, check it out. See, you know, if that might be coming to your part of town uh, and at least let some other non-white people know in protest time, the next offer comes up about protests like mm, those New and they said felony too, like upgrades to some of the the. Uh, I guess if you are end up being charged, it's not going to be a misdemeanor. This is going to be a felony. Like, woof, that would be something to consider the next time Al Sharpton comes to town. Uh, let's see, other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, if you have comments here to share, line should be open. Can I be hurt? Greetings, retired firefighter in Florida. Same state. <laughs> sure is. Sunshine State. Uh, yeah, greetings, Gus, and greetings to uh, everyone. Uh, I uh, will kind of repeat myself from uh, yesterday, uh, but become rel- relevant to uh, what the day uh is designed to talk about. Uh, Robert Runcie, uh was indicted by a grand jury, I believe. Uh, for right now, the only thing that I know is that uh, he is being charged with perjury, which I think is synonymous with not telling the truth. Uh, very vague very vague uh, charge. 
no details, no details. Uh, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, it is a common pattern by the white supremacists uh, uh, with more than just non-white people, but uh, it is quite effective with non-white people who are uh, in uh, uh, places of authority, uh, CEOs, in this case, superintendents. Uh, I, can, I can specifically talk about in Miami-Dade County's history and uh, South Florida history alone. We're talking about there were two other black male school superintendents, both of them at different points in time uh, were superintendents of Miami-Dade County Public School, which is right uh, next to Broward County, just south of Broward County, where I'm at right now. And they both were accused of of uh, uh, charges uh, with, with uh, Johnny Jones and the uh, 1980, uh, it was something about that he uh, stole money uh, to uh, supply his uh, uh, retreat home with uh, gold plumbing. And uh, with Rudy Crew uh, in Miami-Dade Public Schools uh, was uh, implicated on some uh incident that took place uh, at a high school that I worked at uh and uh basically they they uh forced him to resign and uh but they had to pay uh pay out his contract and now Mr. Runcy which is in Broward County just north of Miami-Dade County uh he hasn't been fired yet but uh uh, this pattern, in the pattern that I speak about, if even if this doesn't uh, uh, cause him to uh, be forced to uh, resign or get fired, uh, they would implicate something else more than likely. All of this is coming from the CEO of the state of Florida, the governor of the state of Florida, which is perhaps what he was voted in for in the first place. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so those are things that are happening uh, in South Florida as far as the main situation that's going on. That's all I have to report. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. The Mr. Runcy situation, I think, will be ongoing because uh, when I was re we talked about some of this yesterday for uh, neutralizing workplace racism, which it is this situation. And uh, I believe unless I'm misinformed, the grand jury proceedings were secretive, which is often the case. Uh, but they yeah. they didn't even go into details, as you said, about what this perjury pertain to like you know what did he what did he fib about exactly they didn't go into all the details uh they suggested that there might even be more charges pending so uh this will be one to kind of right. pay attention to um miami herald i guess you can read um they will probably be, be covering this case uh daily uh as things proceed but just lots of examples of black people who 
have some sort of position with like the school board, that sort of thing where they end up being major, like the whole in Atlanta. Remember they had that big case. I think that was like 2015 where I think it was like a dozen several, several teachers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah where they got like prison time and that sort of thing. And I think they might even be talking exactly. about a felony uh, with Mr. Runcy. So, yeah, be mindful. Uh, lots of different ways uh, where they will set black people up for these types of cases and just, oh, yeah, we can't have the Negroes, you know, in charge of anything serious. Look at this. Uh, it's just total, total disgrace. We had to almost lock up every teacher in Atlanta, you know, and then this situation in Chicago. It's been quite a We talked about it. even Pam. We talked about this been a number of these situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. If we missed you totally, line should be open. Greetings, um, guests, greetings, callers, and listeners. Um, there is one new segment that um, mentioned um, some sort of civil investigation regarding the Minnesota um, Police Department. And um, since my starting to understand the system of white supremacy a little bit more. I, I, I see that as being code, um, the world, the word civil as for meaning white people are going to go into a um, racist institution and um, help them to refine it under the guise of um, seeing if people were following the, the, the rules or whatever. So um, that was really um, interesting. Um, the segment with the um, black child um, being um, unable to participate in school due to um, COVID made me um, think of um, the offspring in my life and how um, they really have made um, social interaction a, um, a commodity now, something that they are able to um, dish out in small um, small portion because where we are, um, she's now able to go into um, school for a couple of days out of the week, but it's still very um, limited and um, not um, like it used to be before the COVID situation. So the system of white supremacy is um, definitely um, forever in this refinement stage. And um, I recently finished reading Urugu. And uh, I under able to understand this this thing we're dealing with that classifies themselves as white people, and it's um definitely definitely a um task to um create produce justice. But that'll be all. Hmm. Red Yurugu, spectacular! I just saw that book like a uh, hard copy as well. Uh, non-white person's uh, personal library. That's awesome. Uh, And that's number one book. I mean, in terms of the sequence, that is the first book that we read uh, in the cows book club, Dr. Marimba Ani. Uh, We didn't even have the audio book. We would just read on our own uh, segments uh, a little, little at a time uh, each week. Lots of folks have said over the years, very difficult book, uh, to read, I think it's just because you know it's new concepts, it's a different way of thinking and analyzing the system of of white supremacy individuals who are classified as white. But uh, whew, spectacular read, Doctor Marimba Ani Urugu. 
let's see. Other folks who dialed in, folks that we uh, missed totally, again, the number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Any folks that we missed totally have uh, thoughts they wanted to get in? Cool. Well, double check in to make sure we didn't uh, miss any of the folks who uh, had a hand up. Folks that are already with us, uh, if you have additional thoughts and or I said, um, I at least would be curious, uh, the folks, if uh, we have uh, females who are with us, uh, their thoughts, uh, the commentary that was St. Louis Public Radio, where they were talking about uh, potential uh, correlation between the COVID vaccine uh, and changes in some females' menstrual cycle. Uh, and they included in the segment that they got such appreciation from non-gender binary individuals. Um, what did folks uh, think about that, if anything, particularly females? But uh, if other folks have thoughts, observations that they wanted to share, line should be open. While folks are getting their thoughts together I did not include every like police uh, terrorism incident I'm aware uh, there was the shooting at the Brooklyn Center uh, also in Minnesota uh, this week uh, I think I've said for a long time I'm generally not very uh, interested in covering the police shootings these will continue I think we just uh, had our caller uh, in California who was talking about uh, they will just refine their tactics at most and sometimes they don't even do that and they just continue but uh, I do not feel obligated to uh, report every single police shooting. I do try to, you know, get them as I can. Just, you know, if they they did happen and, and warranted attention. But I mean, these happen all the time in the system of white supremacy, racism. That's been my conclusion for a long time. Try as best you can to comply and really to minimize contact with enforcement officers. Try to minimize doing things that will bring you in contact with them. That's why we talk about that at the end of the program in terms of being sober, uh, the company that you keep. Are you around people who are with the metaphor? I think they use high heads known for being in conflict and being rowdy and loud out in public, like mm, might just may increase your likelihood of being in contact with a Mark Furman or three. Uh, just thinking about those type of things. Uh, if you have offspring, getting them and maybe repeating this. Uh, children's brain computers are still maturing, so their uh, decision making is poor. Repeating things and explaining things over and over and in different unique ways to try to help them grasp. Yes, system of white supremacy, it is very dangerous have to keep that in mind with you know when I it really anytime once I open the door to exit the residence oof, gotta be alert bad things could happen gotta be alert even if you're alert bad things could still happen but you're just trying to 
minimize as best you can. Let's see. Other folks who dialed in that we have uh, missed out. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, I didn't know about the effects of the cycle and um, with the vaccine. Because I was thinking about it. I was like, well, I guess I'll get it. I'm out. You and y'all with that. Uh, I will have to wait. Um, my, my parent, well, my female parent, she got the vaccine, and she has had no problems. She, nothing, no side effects, no. I, no, I think her arm might have been sore for maybe a day, but nothing, nothing else. My father, he, and they got the same vaccine, the same type. Um, he has had nothing, um, including the gender non-binary. I really don't know what that means because some people who are biologically female do identify that as identify as that as well for reasons that you know I don't understand. So I think it um, that um, does issues with validation or the reliability of the survey because not everyone is you don't know if everyone is female because they can be female biologically born female but choose for whatever reasons for their friends you know to identify as non-binary. So it makes you not trust it, but, um, I'm, yeah, I'm out with this, with the vaccine. I think it's, I think it's a no-go for now. Um, all the other things, the deaths of the rappers, that's unfortunate. Um, and that's all I have. Thank you. Wow. That's, uh, she says she's out. She's going to have to wait for more information now. Like, wow, that's amazing. Um, uh, you said uh, your dad got the same, everybody got the same, I guess, did they get the one or the two dose vaccine? Uh, well, they're in different states. They're not oh, married. Okay. okay. And, um, but they both happened to get the same one. They both got the Pfizer. Um, and when you said it, because I guess I was out the room, so I missed that part. I was kind of reading up online a little bit and um, at first I thought it was just Moderna but then it said something about all the other ones it could be more, it could be less no, oh and then the I think her name was Miss Phoenix she was talking about um, you know women don't learn about their bodies, that is so true Um, you kind of learn I guess things in school you know, academic things but you know the feelings and all that you don't know and I remember when I learned about it, it was past that time, so I kind of knew what was going on um, in school. And when I didn't know, my family didn't go, oh, I'm sorry, you didn't know. Let me explain to you. They, you know, they saw that I didn't understand something, and they told other family members, and they laughed. So um, you have to be careful about that thing. About things like that, it does affect you. And I'm old, and I'm still talking about it. Well, a lot older. <laughs> I'm still talking about it, but so you do have to be careful of those things because children, especially those adolescent years, can be very sensitive. So, because things are happening that they, you know, you haven't taught them, or they just they might have happened earlier than you were ready to teach them. 
So be mindful of those things. And you want to do it before the school does because the school is telling you in kindergarten about two mommies, transgender, and all that. So you're going to have to start early to beat the schools. Thank you. Say it twice. You are going to have to start early to beat the schools. Domain of the white woman. Very, very important. Uh, and uh, being sensitive, because I think that's important too, like being sensitive, like, wow, that's, uh, mm, that's, I mean, we shouldn't be ridiculing children anyway, but I mean, dang, that is, yeah, children uh, are, I just said that, like their brain computers are still developing. They are not mature. That's what it means to be a child. You are still learning, still developing. Uh, you are sensitive, like, yeah, be very very sensitive about you know how we talk to young people at those sensitive times like man that is uh yeah that absolutely can have a really traumatizing effect where you end up you know many years later are still talking about it and it still has an impact you know when you're uh as they, i think with the metaphor that they use is uh triggered by different things uh around that or having to bring that up with people in terms of how that you know impacted you uh that or how it still impacts you like that is also very common system. Dr. Wells, she's talked about that all the time, dealing with uh, black people who had gone through all types of trauma during sensitive periods of their childhood. And they would be coming to talk to her decades later, still trying to process and deal with it. Lots of play around with children. Joke is on the offspring. Uh, other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Can I be heard again? Retired firefighter. Yeah, uh, just wanted to uh, make public uh, Mr. William D.C. Clark is uh, uh, vying for uh, commissioner, Miami-Dade County commissioner in a district that he uh, resides in. Uh, so he's going to be quite busy for uh the next several months or so, however long the uh, campaign is for, and the uh, voting uh, takes place on that on that issue. Uh, as most of us probably know, that uh, it uh, demands a quite a bit of uh, raising of funds. <laughs> And uh, so I wish him well on his uh, venture. Best of luck to uh, Mr. Clark. Uh, hopefully he'll be able to do something constructive. Uh, as I'm told, it can be pricey having to do some campaigning and running for some sort of office. It can be uh, quite a pricey uh, enterprise but yeah hopefully he will be successful can do something uh, constructive uh, we'll get updates on that as, as well I reckon uh, other folks comments observations that they had 
gender non-binary let's see oh my goodness. can i be heard uh yes sir yeah in regards to um the trans people um that uh in just regards to your question i think um that is just the um, subtle insanity that has been conditioned uh, I used to live with a um, transgender individual. He was a um, a male pretending to be a um, woman. And um, just uh, confusion and um, that kind of behavior being exposed to um, the, the children. Because um, much, much... Um, well, when I was in my confusion, I also saw this documentary with um, these two um, white people, and, and they like their their genders was like all these labors. I mean, all these labels and stuff, and they were teaching their um, offspring, white offspring, um, how to like classify people, like and all these labels, alphabet labels, and whatever. And I was like, wow, this is um. This is weird, but I didn't think it was um, incorrect. I didn't have the logic to understand that how um, this is incorrect behavior. But um, yeah, I don't see why um, trans people people who can't experience menstrual cycles will have to have any um, verbal input into that area. But um, it, it just really um, just confusion as the system um, needs to produce 24-7. That's all. Much obliged, our caller uh, in California. Uh, Let me make sure we don't miss out. I believe Silent Warrior uh, in Norway. My goodness, let's see if we can get the math. I know it is early Sunday morning almost uh i believe almost so it's i think 5:34 a.m. sunday morning in norway that is wacky uh silent warrior are you there sir yes um good morning over here the sun is already coming out um can you hear me yes sir yeah um, I think I haven't called on compensatory calling for a while. Um, what is it okay to talk about? Oh, well, this is a more open format, uh, uh, just in terms of things that we were uh, talking about today. Like my, oh, we were talking about the vaccine uh, and the report on there perhaps being some sort of relationship between uh, the COVID uh, vaccine impacting uh, females' menstrual cycle. Uh, that was something uh, of note. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm trying to think. CT. Well, I don't know. I'm saying CTE, but that might not have as much relevance to you since you're part of the world and don't have U.S. football craziness. Um, but yeah, this is uh, more. It's interesting that it's uh, impacting the menstrual cycle. If, um, if you read the Brave New World, um, or some of the literature made a hundred years ago about. Uh, um, the white supremacists in England, when they were planning how they would like the world to be, one of these um, 
one of these goals seemed to be to control reproduction and to prevent um, anyone from being able to have a child without their say so. Um, I don't think that's what's happening now, but I'm just saying it's interesting that uh, that this would be one of the side effects. Um, I, I'm, I've been making uh, summary videos of Dr. Welton's work um, in response to the killings last year um, after um, Mr. Floyd. Uh, I've been on, on Facebook and seen um, the discussion go down to not have much value in the different groups, so I made a five-minute and a ten-minute video of her introduction. And um, in the first chapter of the ISIS papers, and I added pictures because, you know, she speaks about, um, for example, artwork in one of the museums in Washington and how it, um, the Elegy series, for example. So I found the Elegy series is on Google, and I put it down on a PowerPoint together with some of her text, summarized that chapter, and in a way to help people who have not read the book, who do not like reading, to come across, to, to be able to have access to her theories so that they can be a little less confused when facing the latest um, attack from white supremacy. So I did that, um, put that up on YouTube, and um, I call it the ISIS Papers Reviews. And then yesterday, two days ago, um, after being inspired by being at the Wilson Institute, lots of people gave the cows a shout-out on the Wilson Institute two days ago. Um, Sabrina wanted to say thank you. I, I made a, my third um, summary um, of the chapter, Guns as Symbols. That was really fun. Um, there's a lot of good images that you can use that you can help to demonstrate how the significance of uh, guns to people. Uh, especially one of the conclusions that came from that is how gun control is equivalent to castration for um, white males because the gun is the substitute. It is the it is the technology that was developed to take over at the limitation of white of white males um for not being able to genetic white males see that black and other non white males can genetically annihilate them with their um with their genitals because they carry the color producing material that is dominant to white recessive genes. So in return, white males develop technology that will compensate for their inadequacy and their weakness in relative relative to black and other non-white males. And that became the gun. And symbolically, the barrel of a gun is the same as the penis, the handle, same as the testicles, the bullets, the same as the sperm. And so w w when you put this on a presentation with pictures, 
it becomes so much obvious. So you you are able to grasp it much faster than if you take the time to read the 12 or so pages in that chapter. So my goal for this presentation was to illustrate the concepts rather quickly and then um, encourage people to buy the ISIS papers and read it and encourage them to also to make their own decoding because um, I noticed that I made a decoding of the news that is used to that has been used in lynchings. Um, the shape of the noose and its format resemble um, the, the the network of um, nerves and inside a testicle. So you actually have a set of um, fibers and nerves around the testicle that look exactly like a noose when you look at it from the, from the side. So I put an image of that, and once you see the, the, an image of a noose and of the anatomy of the testicle, you will see that it looks very much similar. So even the noose that were, they were using for lynching black men is actually a symbolic represent a symbolic weapon that is used to compensate for their inadequacy to, uh, in relation to black men. And the purpose for my purpose for um, for doing for spending the like it's I spent about eighteen hours um, so far working on just this one presentation for the guns as symbols is that uh, I want to find a way to distribute this information so that it can it will it will go on YouTube it will be a five or ten minute video. But eventually, I'm hoping people take those images and refine them so that they can be sent as memes so that someone could just look at the meme in 10 seconds and grasp Dr. Walton's concept of how guns are used as symbols in the white supremacy culture. Yeah. So um, that's all I have to check in. You can... Um, I'll also like to advertise the Facebook group, Dr. Francis Westwelton and Nina Fuller study group. That's where you get um, links to all of the um, other groups and um, and things that uh, we've been doing to you know meet. And I want to give a shout out to Zero Five and the crew in the Accounting Races Book Club. We just finished Yoruga again, and um, it's a very good training ground for counter races so that we can um, examine each other. We need more of these uh, kind of initiatives. Thank you, Gus. Much obliged. Unfortunately, there are a lot of folks who do not read and white people are most to blame for that uh, with we already talked about white women in the schools and the job that they do at just disrupting education and practicing racism and terrorizing whole generations of children and then you come in and have folks who non-white people black students not folks uh, who come in and because of that they just have a really terrible relationship with learning literature 
books they don't even you know no concept of it's like you got to read the hate you give or some other nonsense uh in school uh as opposed to you could be reading invisible man or they were talking about richard wright has a new book that's supposed to be coming out this week uh, about racism might be constructive who knows but i mean there are a lot of you could be reading urugu lots of other things that you could be reading that would be uh uh relevant informative constructive but since that does not happen lots of folks lots of victims of racism have really poor relationships with reading so they won't read a book like uh Yurugu, uh or even the isis papers or they won't really be able to maximize the efficiency from reading the book so it can certainly be helpful to uh get an aid or what have you uh, in reading along or even just getting some encouragement to stick through. I think that can be helpful sometimes just uh, saying, yes, Yurugu is a little bit challenging to read, but it is worth it. Or yes, it's challenging to read and you might even have to read it twice. Like some of uh, films that people, you know, say they enjoy or what have you. You can't just watch it and get everything one time. You, you watch it two, three, four times to really appreciate all the aspects. Sometimes a really good book, a really informative book like Urugu, same way. Reading more important than watching television. Uh, much Can obliged. I ask a question about your reading? About, I'm sorry? Can I, ask the, yeah. Can I ask the same question I did to Gerald Horn? some months ago about your own reading habits, Gus. Uh, so the question is, I guess, just what are, what are my reading habits? Yeah. And uh, how you get down. In terms of how I get books that I read, is that it? Yeah. How often are you reading every day? And like, what are your reading materials? I mean, you read for the show. But you must be, do you do any additional reading? Um, do you, like, read for the show several months in ahead? It really kind of uh, depends uh, on scheduling and what have you in terms of having to read for the program. Like Chip Jones, he was just on the program, uh, I think, last week. Uh, and so it took me about a week to read his book. That's not one of the biggest, largest books that we've had to uh, cover on the program, but it will depend on, you know, how large is the book? Uh, how quickly is this person going to be coming on the program? Like I'd have to look up uh, some of the, the, just kind of in terms of how long it takes to prepare. Is it going to take a month in advance? Most of the time we don't have a month in advance to pay, uh, prepare. Most of the time it's going to be uh, within about two weeks or so. Uh, to go over the book, kind of evaluate, pull questions or snippets uh, and things from it. So normally it's going to have to be within about 14 days unless it's like a unusually lengthy text. Uh, and most of them are not that. Um, but yeah, in terms of finding material, uh, all kinds of ways, uh, you know, cows, listeners recommend books. Uh, I watch C-SPAN Book TV. They have authors on uh, all the time. I think it comes on on Sunday, so it'll probably be on tomorrow. They had Harriet A. Washington on um, earlier this month. She was on on April 4, Dr. King. Uh, but yeah, mm -hmm. I watch Book TV. 
uh, in uh, NPR, they regularly have authors uh, on their program, frequently authors who are writing about uh, racism, white supremacy, uh, and other uh, programs or podcasts. They frequently will have authors on. Um, let's see, I read the footnotes. Um, frequently, if you're reading a book that is about racism, they will have footnotes, so they will mention other books uh, where they got information, and often that will be uh, very informative. So. Lots of different ways uh, that I find. I go to the library. That's at work. At least prior to the Rona, uh, I enjoyed going to the library and just browsing. You can stumble over all kinds of books there. Um, lots of different ways. Even uh, Judith Finlayson's book. That's one that I have out. Um, I found out about that. Um, listening to the radio. I think they did an interview with her and she talked about you are what your grandparents ate. So lots of different ways there's so much information uh on you know so many different subject matters and topics uh try to learn something about everything um yeah just try to find uh as many books as you can and just try to i mean people mention books all the time like you'll hear i'm be out at the park at the beach and hear people they'll be talking about books or they'll have books just once you uh see a value in reading you'll just be curious about what books people are reading and pick up sources all the time you'll be amazed and I live in a city where it's easy to find books Seattle 20 public libraries and lots of other institutions of books lots of independent bookstores so very very they have even I was bragging they have little free uh, I'll have to find my phone so I can give the exact title but they have little free book cubbies here in uh, Seattle I can't locate my phone. I could give you the exact title, but they're little free book cubbies and uh, they are throughout the neighborhood. There's one on my street right now uh, and they're all over this area, but uh, they're maybe, I don't know the metric system, but uh, it would be like three by three feet, but I don't know the metric equivalent. Um, but it's small. It almost looks like a mailbox about that size. It's a little larger than the average mailbox. Uh, and it'll have like three shelves in it of books. Uh, and it's, it'll say on the sign, uh, leave a book, take a book. Uh, and I went and I opened it. I looked, they had a vegan cookbook <laughs> in the, uh, library. So of course I took that one. That was just for my personal, uh, giggles. And you asked about my personal reading stuff too, like that yoga books, of course. Um, so yeah, I have other things that, you know, I enjoy checking out as well, but mostly my library is mostly racism, white supremacy, mostly, but increasingly I do have uh, a good number of vegan cookbooks and yoga books. Are you reading mostly on paper? Do you use any, do you read electronically, like uh, with an iPad or PDFs? A healthy number of both. I have a much larger than I would like a uh, hard copy library uh, as someone who moved within the last 30 days. Uh, but I also have a substantial uh, digital library. So quite a bit of both. Thank you. Hmm. When do we get your best read in the, like in the morning? After you, girl. Generally, when I am motivated and not sleepy, um, it's what quality <laughs> rest. As long as I don't have to read when I'm 
not sleepy, uh, and especially if the author is coming on the program or if I'm reading about vegan cooking, you know, I'd be excited about that anyway. As long as I'm not sleepy, I am generally great. Just don't like reading when I'm sleepy or material that is not constructive, boring, not useful. All right, thank you for answering my questions. For sure, for sure. Lots to learn about. Tons of books out there on all kinds of subjects. Vegan cooking, countering racism, white supremacy, yoga, lots of things. Uh, let's see. Other folks uh, had commentary before we get ready to wrap up last few minutes. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I know I spoke before, um, but no one said anything. I just wanted to say, I know you talked, um, there was a segment about the anti-Asian bill, and, you know, I've thought about it, we can go back and forth about why them, not us, blah, blah, blah. However, I think we have to remember that the Asians have large military presence. There's a lot of talk about their navies and things like that. So while something happens to us, I don't know, anybody who looks like me from a foreign country that can come and help me where something happens to the Asians and they own a lot of the um, treasury stocks and bonds and things like that. Well, U.S. say U.S. treasury notes and things like that. So I don't know if they necessarily like them more than us or whatever, but, you know, you have to be careful about who you tick off as well. So that could have something to do with it too. Thank you. For sure, for sure. Um, I don't know. They they have uh, they have the Matthew Shepard, James Byrd Jr. hate crime bill, and that didn't seem to stop mistreatment of anyone. Um, lots of problems with the Matthew Shepard, James Byrd Jr hate crime bill but be that as it may like I I'm not even I'm not that sure I even have to see I have to see I mean I could be totally wrong but I have to see how uh, what sort of impact this legislation will have how this will be used uh, if at all uh, and then all the rest of it but I mean we we are in a racial hierarchy black get back even the black ducks maybe get back uh, other folks last uh, couple minutes before we conclude or unless everybody's satisfied. Everybody good? Grand, grand. Uh, we will at minimum have the book club on Thursday. More opportunities to read right there. Uh, Jack Olson, Last Man Standing, The Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt. Uh, we are more than halfway through the book, almost inching, or not even almost. We started uh, name dropping uh, lots of familiar names from the O.J. Simpson trial last week. And as I start, I have read this book already. It's just been some years since I've read it. Like, oh, yeah, this book does go all the way back to the O.J. Simpson trial. Like we will end exactly where we started 
Um, yeah, that's all I can say. Like this was picked deliberately for a reason. And as I recall, the, another reason why we're reading this book now, uh, one to learn more about Johnny Cochran, which we did this week. They killed his, uh, fire eel. Don't bring anything to work that you don't need. Uh, but also, wow, does this book explain a lot of detail about Pro? It is written by a suspected racist. So, you know, you have to be alert, but it does give quite a bit of detail uh, about Pro and about how uh, confused the non-white people, even the non-white people who were supposed to be, you know, experts about racism. They were not experts about Pro. Even the folks who were suspicious that things were happening they did not understand and even to this degree still don't understand like 2021 white people are not ignorant uh, about racism white supremacy major lesson uh, from the book club but that's continuing on Thursday more than halfway through um, yeah more than halfway through hopefully we'll be thinking about other books uh, to read for yeah, late spring, warm weather. We can sit outside and read a little bit. Go to the beach and read a little bit. Anywho, uh, much obliged for folks' participation. Hope it was worthy of your uh, Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Uh, I cannot say enough. Uh, try to get outside. Like for so many of us, we've had to be cooped in the house. Uh, for various reasons a lot over the last year or so like getting outside to get that vitamin D some sunshine is so important uh, for your health just moving around for the health of your body is so important uh, move around you can go hiking or uh, just go uh, walk the block as I said like just get out get in the sun it's warming up uh, well I guess for some of us, it's warming up. I am aware for some folks, it did snow where they are located this week. So if possible, if warmer, get outside, try to take advantage of uh, the warmer weather. So important for us to be uh, mindful and doing things that promote uh, health and well-being. And uh, man, being able to luxuriate at the beach three different times this week, man being outside is spectacular get that sunshine uh with that much obliged uh for your participation sobriety would be best under condition uh under conditions of white supremacy i I just said watching our health there is nothing health promoting about alcohol spirits as they say in addition to being sober uh, let's be buckled. If you got to be out and about, uh, I would still say hunker down, particularly if you're in the U.S. Uh, there's so much uh, just flagrant violence and terrorism in so many different forms. Uh, I would be very alert uh, when you go out and about. Be mindful of what's happening around you. Uh, if it looks like people are being loud and rowdy, I would vacate. Uh, I was very mindful even uh, while I was at the beach, making sure I picked areas that were not densely populated, not around a whole lot of folks, if anyone, if I could help it, and very vigilant. Make sure nobody's acting wild. Try to minimize the dangers where we can. Uh, All of that said, uh, also, you should be thinking uh, it could be if someone is out being rowdy that they might have a group with them. You should be thinking that they and their entourage could be armed very important for folks in the so-called US all that said 
you're sober if you're going out you're buckled if you're driving you are not on the cell phone we need all of our attention and we are trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with the Mark Furman's of the known universe that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out no name calling very easy it is in the 10 stops for a reason minimizing conflict major component of replacing white supremacy with justice cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.